There will now be an opportunity for silent prayer or meditation. Thank you. Please be seated. <laughs> order, order. Honorable members, please settle down. Uh, we'll get back to the rituals uh, in the next couple of days. <laughs> Yes, let's, uh, let's, yes, yes, honorable member, who's there? Honorable, yes. Working conditions means there must be proper ventilation. We're not feeling that here. On a point of order, for the first time we see you here, you have been in a very conducive place. Uh, Chief Reef, who gave you permission to speak? <laughs> order, order. Uh, honorable members, please, the session is beginning now. Uh, only speak when you are recognized, and those who complain about the weather, uh, <laughs> uh, They'll probably do something about it if it's such a major problem. Uh, honorable members, please stay in your located seats. And, and uh, we are inside. Let's keep our masks on. Um, the only item on today's order paper is questions addressed to the ministers in cluster four. This is economics. There are four supplementary questions on each question, parties have given an indication of which questions their members wish to pose supplementary questions on. Adequate notice was given to parties for this purpose. This was done to facilitate participation of members who are members generally, and especially those who are connecting to the seating through the virtual platform. The members who will pose supplementary questions will be recognized. In allocating opportunities for supplementary question, we will be fair. If a member who is supposed to ask a supplementary question through a virtual platform is unable to do so due to uh, technological difficulties, the party whip on duty will be allowed to ask the question on behalf of their member. When all supplementary questions have been answered, uh, we will proceed to the next question on the question paper. First question has been asked by Honorable Singh to the Minister of Forestry, Fisheries and Environments. I've been informed that the Minister will be answering questions from the Chamber. Honorable Minister. Thank you very much, Deputy Speaker, and thank you very much to Honorable Singh for the question. Honorable Singh, in 2020, South Africa submitted its low emissions development strategy to the United Nations in terms of the Paris Agreement. In this strategy, we, in common with the overwhelming majority of countries, made an aspirational commitment to reach net carbon zero by 2050. This is in line with our resolve to make a fair contribution to the global effort to address climate change. 
To this end, we have also substantially revised our nationally determined contribution to reducing greenhouse gas emission targets for 2030, which we also submitted to the United Nations last year. All countries agreed to phase down coal use in Glasgow last year at the annual climate talks. This includes South Africa, as well as our major developing country allies and coal users, India and China. Both these countries are investing trillions of dollars in renewable energy as part of the global energy transition. South Africa cannot avoid this transition, and we are fortunately blessed with excellent renewable resources. We will not phase out coal overnight, as some have suggested. We will ensure that the transition from a coal-dominated electricity system to a low-carbon energy system is just, that no one is left behind. The pace of the transition will be determined by the imperatives of this just transition, our international obligations under the Paris Agreement, the availability of international support, our need to protect communities from air pollution, and our obligations to ensure energy security for the economy. Honorable um, Minister, your time has expired. Okay. I'll give you the rest under supplementary. <laughs> Thank you. No, no, no. That's important to indicate that you're tabling it. That's useful. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, switch off your microphone, Daddy. Uh, Honorable Singh. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. And, and then thank you to the Honorable uh, Minister for the uh, response. And I see she's uh, ably supported by the Deputy Minister here today. But I think the, the challenge that we have as those that are involved in the environmental sector, and particularly those of us that uh, sit on this committee, and even the Minister herself who sits on the Cabinet, is that it's quite a juggling act when you have to look at that we have to protect the environment at all costs. That is our mandate. But yet you get others, maybe in the trade and uh, industry sector and other sectors that want to create jobs. And it becomes quite a challenge sometimes for us to be able to do both. So we have to do it in quite a responsible way. But having said that, Honorable Minister, I just want to quote from an article published in The Economist on 22nd January 2022 where South Africa was referred to as the, and I quote, world's coal junkie, close quote. And it went on to state that we were, quote again, trying to quit, but that we are being held back by a gang of coal-dependent politicians. Now, I don't know who those coal-dependent politicians are, but that's what the article says. What is also notable is that despite our heavy reliance on coal and access to coal reserves, we still can't keep the lights on all the time in South Africa. And I hope the president can convince the investors that is tomorrow at the investment conference that we will keep the lights on for them to invest. So my question is, Honorable Minister, how do you intend to persuade your colleagues in cabinet, some of whom remain fully aboard coal-fired express, to embrace renewable energy, make use of these soft loans that we are receiving of uh, billions of run, and to assist in creating an, uh, an environment that is favorable even for investors 
to invest in renewable energy and not only give money to ESCOM because we know what ESCOM does with the money. Thank you, Honourable Minister. Thank you very much, Honourable Member. And I think that we both agree that the current situation of energy poverty in this country does present us with an opportunity to increase the renewable component of our electricity generation. And the IRP 2019 is compatible with a significant increase in renewable energy generation. And my colleague, who no doubt will speak for himself in this chamber, has indicated to the, to the Climate Commission that he is open to receiving presentations on revisions on the IRP, which obviously could be necessary if we were to achieve the lower limit of our nationally determined contribution. But I think the key juggling act, as you say, is we have 88,000 workers that are directly dependent on the coal value chain in this country. If we use a multiplier of four, we're talking about half a million people indirectly dependent on that value chain. As we transition, we have to make sure that first of all, we repurpose power plants that are going to be decommissioned. We have to make sure that we are ensuring the direct jobs are saved through that repurposing. And we've got to develop new value chains in Mpumalanga in particular, that would take care of those who would be in the extended coal producing value chain. We can't let the most vulnerable in our society pay the highest burden of this transition. Thank you, Minister. Deputy Speaker, point of order. What's the point of order? Deputy Speaker, I would like to know whether it's parliamentary to smoke a Zol on the virtual platform. The Honorable Nazir Paulsel is smoking a Zol on the platform. Uh, he is preparing to demonstrate at my residence he needs a little extra courage. Uh, <laughs> I hope it's not true, Honorable Members. I think uh, it would be unfortunate if that was to be the case. Uh, because Speaker, we, can't, we can't see that, yes. Yes, Honorable. Pain, Deputy Speaker. Yes, Honorable Member. Gloom must have his eyes checked. Uh, okay. <laughs> Honorable Members, okay, let's proceed. Let's proceed. We don't expect that uh, to happen anyway. Why are you raising, Honorable Member? Uh, thank you very much, Deputy Speaker. I think what the Honorable uh, Minister is doing, it's quite wrong and you are allowing it, that she continuously to interject. She did it just now when a point of order was raised in attempt to uh, uh, reply. And if other members are doing it, you are quick to send them out of the house. So please let the rules be followed to each and every person. That might can't just be pressed anytime the minister sees fit she wants to press it. Let's follow the rules of the House Deputy Speaker. Thank you. Uh, I do appreciate appreciation of the rules. They will be enforced all the time. Uh, Honorable Gancho. Thank you. 
What are you waiting for, sir? Deputy Speaker, I'm taking the question on behalf of Honorable Kancho. She's not here. Yes, you must explain that and not keep quiet. I was waiting for you to give me the quiet. No, but how do I do that when I don't know whether he's here or not? Surely you have to act 1530. Please go ahead. <clears throat> I'm not in the mood, Deputy. Uh, Honorable Minister, there's a greater need to ensure that all stakeholders are on board in ensuring there's a greater realization of reductions in carbon emissions. Uh, are there any partnerships with uh, private stakeholders and other government entities and uh, state-owned enterprises, uh, including ESCOM, that the Department of Forestry, Fisheries and Environment has entered into towards supporting the country's carbon reduction pledges contained in the nationally determined contributions? If there are any, what is the nature of such partnerships and how are they being funded? And two, what is the level of such support from the business and civic organizations? Thank you. Honorable Minister. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Deputy Speaker. I think the first thing that's important to say in this regard is that we have the Climate Commission that was established by President Ramaphosa last year. And this commission represents the private sector, organized labor, civil society, and government, and is responsible for assisting in determining just transition pathways and for ensuring that there is adequate research, that these, these just transition pathways are uh, properly developed, that they are properly financed, and that there is adequate uh, support from all stakeholders in this regard. I think that it's also important to note that ESCOM itself has been doing significant work on understanding what it will mean in Mpumalanga to have a decommissioning of the, the coal-fired power stations that are due for decommissioning by 2030. And in this regard, uh, Komati Power Station is the proof of concept project it's a very interesting project, and I would urge honorable members to visit it should they have an opportunity. We have raised international financing for the, um, all the research that is being done, and ESCOM itself has also raised money for the repurposing with renewables of Kamati Power Station. And I think that what we're doing there is we're understanding what a just transition partnership will mean when it's implemented in practice, and this would guide our work going forward. Thank you very much. Thank you. The third supplementary question is by Honorable D.W. Bryant. Yeah. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Deputy Speaker, the courts have recently found against the minister in a landmark judgment on air pollution in the high fault priority area. The judgment singles out ESCOM for its lack of transparency regarding emissions, as well as the ministry causing what it terms inordinate delays. In light of the judgment, what steps will the minister now be taking to hold ESCOM to account? And furthermore, does she intend on appealing the judgment? Thank you, Minister. Thanks very much, Honorable Brandt. I think, first of all, one wants to say to you that one has taken senior counsel advice on this particular judgment. I'm only going to get that advice by Friday, 
I was correct in predicting you would ask me this question, so I checked when I'll get the, when I'll get the advice. I think that then I will be able to indicate what my legal approach is. But let me say to you that in an attempt to settle this matter before it went to court, I had offered to the non-governmental organizations that I would draft the regulations they were requesting. They obviously had other reasons why they wanted to pursue this particular matter and they didn't agree to that settlement. So one does not have an objection to the regulations per se. I think what we all understand is the complex balancing act that we face in terms of, on the one hand, protecting citizens from air pollution, from preventing health complications from air pollution, from ensuring energy security, and from making sure that we have overall environmental protection. And I think those, those are complicated matters and you would know that prior to this judgment, one had asked the Climate Commission to air views from all affected and interested parties on the question of ESCOM's and civil society's appeal on the air emissions issues. No reply time, so thank you. Uh, the next supplementary question is asked by Honorable Sheikh. Uh, thank you very much, Deputy Speaker. And Minister, I think you have partially responded to what I intend asking you right now. Honorable Minister, while we must agree that coal contributes to pollution in the end and has an adverse effect on the environment, we cannot underestimate the value of coal given our energy crisis, including the cost of diesel, but more importantly, South Africa exports coal, generating revenue. Uh, and like I said, you have uh, responded partially to it. What impact is this going to have on the economy and particularly those that live around these coal mines? Thank you, Minister. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Minister. I think, um, Honourable Member, there is no intention to irresponsibly fail out, phase out the use of coal-fired energy generation either from the perspective of saying that um, we would want to decommission plants without providing alternative sources of generation, or from the perspective of saying that we will just continue willy-nilly with coal-fired generation. We have international commitments which we intend to honour. We also have a commitment to climate justice. And climate justice means that those who are most vulnerable in our society and that includes workers in the coal value chain and citizens who live in the towns in Mpumalanga that will be most affected by this transition cannot be left to carry the consequences of transitioning away from coal. And that is why we are putting so much effort together with ESCOM into researching alternatives, looking at viable possibilities with regard to repurposing of power stations, and working together with other ministers, including the Minister of Science and Technology and the Minister of Labor, to make sure that we have proper plans for reskilling and upskilling workers and that no one is left behind. Thank you very much, Deputy Speaker. Thank you. Uh, the next question, which is 180, has been asked by Honorable Maneli to the Minister of Communications and Digital Technologies. 
Minister. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker. And thank you for the question to, from Honorable Maneli. The reasons for the decline, the declining of SAPO funding by National Treasury was due to fiscal constraints, as stated by the Minister of Finance at the 2022 budget speech. However, there is consensus with the Minister of Finance on the funding of the implementation of the SAPO of tomorrow strategy, which is a repositioning plan as commencing from the year 2022-23 financial year. The Minister of Finance is finalizing the necessary details. And uh, this is because SAPO is a critical agent of government to deliver services in, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to the rural poor and in uh, rural areas in particular, where government offices are not physically present. And because SAPO has a very strong or far-reaching postal network. And if this postal network is uh, properly harnessed, the, the reach of the postal network holds a great potential to the positioning the SAPO as a strategic contributor to the goal of ensuring both economic and digital inclusion in South Africa. And I need to set the record straight that the portfolio committee of the communications on the 15th of March, uh, it, was not be, it was not closed because the department was soliciting support of the portfolio committee for the SAPO bailout and neither was SAPO soliciting 9 billion rands in terms of bailout, uh, as, as mentioned in some publications and want, some people wanting to turn around it. We requested the meeting to be closed to protect the, the commercial sensitive information of SAPO. SAPO competes in a market with private players who can take the opportunity to abuse that and move faster. So we needed that meeting closed as everybody is. And SAPO has requested with the support, and that's what National Treasury is considering, 1.6 billion rands for funding over the two year period. And that's what the Minister of Trans uh, Trans uh, is, uh, is, is considering for us. Unlike the previous turnaround strategies, the post office of tomorrow and its implementation plan are not going to be implemented parallel to the implementation of the corporate plan of SAPO. They are going to be the corporate plan of SAPO for commencing in the year 2022-23 financial year. And with, with the licensing of high demand uh, frequency spectrum, the department is going to for some of the digital technologies that are going to be rolled out commencing this financial year. And some of the services include the deployment of digital hubs, email addresses, and the email addresses for learners that, that we are working with uh, private industries where they do not reach. And also supports the custodian of the postal network uh, uh, fiscal addresses and postal addresses. They were going to use that uh, service to extend the FICA services where the private sector and everybody can pay for their services. I also wish to state that the interdependent relationship between SAPO and Postbank is protected by law and the two entities are required uh, to enter into a service uh, agreement to ensure that the delivery of the services of both entities is not impacted by the separation of the two entities. Thank you, Chairperson. Uh, thank you, Minister. The uh, first supplementary question is honorable <coughs> by Honorable Maneli. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Minister, for your response. We have noted with concern that many SAPO offices had to close in recent years, and this meant that uh, people in those communities now have to travel 
further to get uh, services. And of course, the transportation costs uh, are also prohibiting a number of those to access such services. How is the department planning to deal with this challenge? Uh, in particular, the turnaround strategy, whether it does uh, uh, speak to potentially reopening some of these offices, especially in the uh, rural uh, spaces, so that people continue to access the services. Thank you, Tabs. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Thank you, Honorable uh, Deputy Speaker. I must indicate that the SAPO offices that are closed are the offices that are not owned by SAPO, but where SAPO has rented from retail partners. And therefore, our strategy and approach is that SAPO must go back to its own facilities. We are working between SAPO and Postbank to refurbish the, the postal services that are in our communities that are owned by SAPO, that they do not have to pay rent on, but they have to be upgraded and also upgrading of the network. So that those uh, services that are currently in malls, which SAPO pays expensive uh, rates in and, and rentals, uh, they pay expensive rentals in, they can go back to where SAPO is in our rural areas. So we are already working on a plan to make sure that is the case. We have indicated to the portfolio committee that as soon as that uh, the level of detail of that plan comes into, in, into finality, we are going to share with the uh, portfolio committee and uh, the, the, the extent of the reopening of the post offices that are owned by SAPO and not where they are paying rates to landlords. Thank you. Minister Honorable Malachi. Thanks, Deputy Speaker. Um, Minister, noting that there is now consensus between your department and Treasury over the funding needs of the turnaround strategy, and given that one of the key aspects of the turnaround strategy is the proposed marketing budget of 250 million from 2022 to 2024-25 financial year. Why do you think it is then justifiable to be spending or planning to spend almost a quarter of a billion on marketing while the post office is currently struggling to pay while the post office is struggling to pay its basic bills such as rental um, in some areas and telecommunications needs in the form of telephones and ICT. Thank you. Minister. Thank you, Honorable uh, Deputy Speaker. I'm hoping the members of the DA will not continue to be disruptive when, the, when we are responding. Uh, uh, we must indicate that marketing in, in SAPO is not an operational cost. It's part of the services that they need to do. If they're going to get uh, businesses, they must get uh, to market. Like any other business, marketing cost is a critical issue for them. They cannot, it's not automatic that SAPO is going to get the services or the businesses that it requires. It must go on intensive marketing. So for us, marketing is not an overhead. It's part of the critical operations that SAPO must do to attract the services that they require in the private sector and also in, in the in the in, in the in the continent as we play a role of the e-commerce integrator and hub for the continent of Africa. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Honorable Pambo. Uh, Deputy Speaker, I'll assist. Okay, uh, go ahead. Minister, as recent as two days ago, there were threats by telecom to cut off services at SAPO for an uncircled bill of almost 300 million. The entity has historical debt of about 4.3 billion, 4 billion as well. The former CEO of the entity, Mark Barnes, has been given ample time in the media about this desire 
to buy the entity and to turn it around. During his tenure as CEO as SAPO, did he entangle SAPO in any debt commitments that the entity is struggling with today? Perhaps with the intention of collapsing it in order to advocate for its privatization. Kotil? Uh, uh, yes, Deputy Speaker. Okay, thank you, Honorable Member. Uh, Honorable Minister? Thank you, uh, Deputy Speaker. I must clarify that this, the telecom, the support debt to telecom is not close to 300 million. It's, it's around 200 million, 210 million to be specific. And we are working with SAPO on repaying that amount. And I must indicate the second part of the question around uh, Mr. Mark Vance. Mr. Mark Vance was given 3.5 billion. And as I've indicated, SAPO is only looking for 1.6 billion. Mr. Mark Vance was given 3.5 billion to turn around SAPO. He did not turn around SAPO. And it's very rich from him to say he wants to buy SAPO. If he was serious about turning around SAPO, he will not be sitting where we are because the problems of SAPO are coming even from the period that way he is. And we have indicated we're not interested in what the offering of Mr. McVance. We have a plan with the current management and board of SAPO to reposition SAPO and turn it around. And we are confident that we will achieve that. I cannot, I do not know sitting here what entanglements that we that Mr. McVance and any other previous CEO would have contracted SAPO into. We are focused on the repositioning of SAPO and as work to reposition SAPO, we'll pick up whatever has been picked up and then we'll do the necessary reporting to the relevant authorities. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Honorable Dana. <clears throat> Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Honourable Minister, um, you've mentioned that there are many plans to turn around the South African Post Office and modernisation of the South African Post Office is necessary to save and turn it around in order to provide quality service to especially rural areas in South Africa. But post office facilities and buildings, the basic building blocks of this service, are in a deplorable state with the South African Post Office owing millions in utilities to municipalities, to landlords and buildings falling apart. And the staff component is also too large. What is your department's plan to get these debts paid up, to get facilities upgraded, and to streamline the staff component of the South African Post Office before you can even look at modernization of the Post Office because the basics are not in place? Thank you, Deputy. Thank you. Honourable Minister. Thank you, Honourable Deputy Speaker. I must clarify, SAPO is not owing any municipalities, utility bills, except what is currently due. They've, they've made sure that they've paid all municipalities what, what has been due. So they do not have debt to municipalities, they have debts to landlords. And as I indicated earlier, the debts, we are moving out of the uh, properties that are rented. We're going back to the to facilities that are rented, in, uh, that are owned by SAPO. And we indicated earlier when I was responding to the question by Honorable Maleneli that we're going to, uh, final, we're finalizing a plan on the refurbishment of the SAPO infrastructure. And I want to give an example in Soweto in Chablani Mall. SAPO is renting in the mall, whereas next door to the mall, there is a SAPO building. It doesn't make sense. So we are going back to our own facilities and we are putting a plan, we're finalizing a plan on the renovations of those facilities. And we committed that we are going to share with the portfolio committee those, the, the, that granularity of detail, and, and including the modernization in the, the network infrastructure to get it upgraded to work. And a part of this is part of the other plans that the department have in around SA Connect and how we use support facilities to drive SA Connect and community connectivity. Thank you, Honorable Speaker, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Honorable Minister. 
you, uh, members, the next question is 220, and it's asked by Honorable D.T. George to the Minister of Finance. Uh, order, members, please, order. Uh, Deputy Speaker? Yes. Um, point of order. What's the point? Can we appeal to the minister? She's too fast. We are struggling to keep up with her response. Um, and it's an injustice to us because we have asked the question. So we really want to hear her input. Thank you. Yeah, but why do it when the horse has bolted, so to speak? Other questions? Because then, Deputy Speaker, you'll say we're interrupting the minister. So we've actually been polite and waited for the minister to speak, and now we're raising the issue with you. So uh, we're actually doing the right way. No, no, no. You're not doing the right way, honorable member. If you are not hearing, you say we can't hear. That's simple. Nobody will fight with you. Of course, if you're out of order in any other manner, I'll rule you out of order. But when you ask, oh, hold on, Chief Whip. If you are asking to hear, there is no reason why you shouldn't say that. It's a rational request. In future, do it that way. Don't insist on always being right, honorable members. Please, man. I'm, I'm doing it on behalf, I'm doing it on behalf of presiding officers. Do indicate we can't hear the minister. That's a reasonable thing. No, but we gave her a fair chance because she has other questions. We didn't want to disrupt that. Okay, listen here, you are making excuses. Let's proceed, honorable members. Uh, let's proceed, please. Uh, I said the next, uh, the Minister of Finance uh, will answer. The honorable minister. Which question? <laughs> Uh, 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 uh. It's 2.20, Honorable Minister. Two. Question 2.20. Question 2.20. Yes. I've got 184, 2.20 is from Honorable George. That's why I'm asking. Sorry. Yes, yes. That's where we are, Honorable Minister. <laughs> Thank you, Honorable Deputy Chair. Speaker. Uh, I said the following in the budget speech. Minister Mandash and I have agreed that a review of all aspects of the fuel price is needed. Point of order. Let's focus on the minister's response. The image and appearance will be dealt with. Please, you are wasting time. Please, that's what you're talking about. No, I'm just asking you to switch off the, the camera. That will be better. Honorable members, please, can you focus on listening? I said, please. I know, I know, I know the aesthetics and your artistry is your concern. Uh, please let the minister proceed. Uh, the man's induction is not complete. He, he, <laughs> the virtual platform, uh, the minister will get used to the virtual platform. He will be able to appear properly and so on. Please don't worry. Please don't make it an issue. Uh, Honorable minister, please proceed. You get you. the drift. Thank you, thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker. 
um, for helping me with the induction. I'm staying style. Let me, in response, I say, I said the following in the budget speech. Minister Mandash and I have agreed that a review of all aspects of the fuel price is needed. Our teams have already begun to engage on this critical work, close quote. Accordingly, there have been several follow-up engagements between the two ministers and departments on this matter. Fuel prices in South Africa are comprised of four main components. The basic fuel price, retail, wholesale margin, taxes and levies, and storage and distribution cost. Nearly 70% of the price is regulated by the Department of Mineral and Energy, and the remainder by National Treasury. At the time of the budget, I indicated that in order to provide some relief to households, no increases will be made to the general fuel levy on petrol and diesel for 2022-2023. This relief amounted to 3.5 billion for South Africans. I also announced that there would be no increase in the road accident fund levy. National Treasury has undertaken to review uh, this levy. The DMR can, in the immediate, implement changes to the basic fuel price formula informed by the department's review undertaken in 2018. In addition, the DMR has agreed to the review of, of regulated margins determined through regulator accounting system. The regulator accounting system is the collection of, of systems and procedures used by the DMR to determine the petrol margins for secondary storage handling, secondary distribution, wholesale, and retail benchmark service station activities. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you, Honorable George. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Minister. The fuel price is too high and causes poverty. Since 2018, the issue of the restructuring of the fuel pricing methodology has been on the agenda for action. Some, somebody hasn't switched off something. Thank you very much. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Minister. The fuel price is too high and causes poverty. Honorable Minister, please switch off your mic. Please mute. Go ahead, Honorable Minister. Try using that one. The same one. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Minister. The fuel price is too high and causes poverty. Since 2018, the issue of the restructuring of the fuel pricing methodology has been on the agenda for action without any progress. Tax and levies on fuel are key elements of government tax revenue at approximately 6% of revenue collected. This tax revenue is added to general revenue and funds government spending. If government better managed the tax that it collected, it could manage on lower revenue and lower the tax on fuel. We pay more for fuel because government mismanages the tax we pay for the service it doesn't deliver. The minister missed an opportunity to lower tax on fuel in February. He can immediately reduce the cost of living for everyone, especially struggling households, if he acts decisively. What is the deadline 
to restructure the pricing mechanism. By what date can we expect this to happen? Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Uh, I said work is being done in this regard. What is making the decision more urgent is the impact of the uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict, which is uh, moving the, the price of fuel faster than we have thought. The work that we are doing is intended to respond uh, to the immediate challenge that we are facing. And I think a decision is going to be announced fairly soon. Thank you. Thank you. Honorable Butelezi. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable uh, Deputy Speaker. The Minister has just uh, spoken about the, the Russia invasion of Ukraine, which is obviously going to lead to high oil prices and grain prices globally, which will directly push up the price of key goods within South Africa's customer price index, such as fuel and bread, as well as high commodity prices could also lead to second-order inflation effect, such as public transport, food prices, will also increase. And as Mr. has just said now, what is the plan to mitigate this, just the effect of Ukraine invasion of uh, Russia invasion of Ukraine in the medium and the long term, specifically on that one? Thank you. Uh, Honorable Minister. Uh, I can't reveal the details at this stage. We are in a sensitive discussion with the DMRE. Clearly, there is an intention on the, on, the, on the part of government to make immediate step, in particular for April and May, where to make some mitigate the effects of the price increases, even as a temporary measure during those two months. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Honorable Swart. Thank you, Deputy Speaker, Honorable Minister. If one has regard to the budget review, it states that, quote, research on fuel price re regulation has found that a combination of regulatory amendments can reduce the petrol price by 103.82 cents per litre. Now, clearly, we in the ACDP and many other people here would hope for a larger reduction following your review, Minister. Now, the amendments to the international component of the basic fuel price were proposed by the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy in 2018, but was sadly never implemented. Lastly, it is a matter of great concern that to us as the ACDP that the since 2012 taxes and related levies for fuel have on average more than doubled as a share of the total fuel price. Now we appreciate this review is taking place, but is the aspect of the international component of the basic fuel price, which was proposed, which was supported by the Department of Mineral Resources, not something that can be implemented without much delay to bring much needed relief to consumers. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Uh, um, obviously, some of the questions were phrased before my answers, because the Honorable Minister, the, the Honorable Member knows that it is almost a month ago when I made that statement. And today, after that statement, I'm saying some work is being done to attend to this challenge, particularly even if it's on a temporary basis, 
for the month of April and May. What that means, that work is, is urgent from a government perspective in order to deal with us. Parallel to that, if I, if I may answer this question, we're dealing with kind of two approaches, a long-term approach, which will take into account the review of 2018, take that into account and make sure that over a long-term uh, horizon, the price of fuel is, is made competitive. There's a short-term intervention which must say, how do we cushion the immediate shock? So those are two components that we're making or talking about. And those components, one of those components is going to be announced in the next few weeks. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, Honorable Kwankwa. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Deputy Speaker. Uh, Honorable Minister, in addition to uh, restructuring rather the fuel pricing methodology, should we not also consider a more comprehensive approach in trying to cushion uh, members of the public, especially the poor, from the negative effects of the fuel price increase by looking at or even considering a raft of other measures which would include for instance, reducing the value-added tax back to the original 14% instead of the 15%, which, as you know, is regressive. And if you were to cut it, would provide more protection to the poor. Uh, so I'm saying in addition to this, should we not consider a more comprehensive raft of measures that will help to mitigate the effects of the price increase or energy increase in general on the South African economy? Thank you. Thank you, uh, Minister. You know, when you construct a budget, uh, Honorable uh, Deputy Speaker, there's a whole range of measures uh, you, you take to cushion the effects of the poor. Let me just say, if we were to follow Honorable Ngwangwa's suggestion, a 1% reduction on VAT would amount approximately to about 30 billion, just roughly. That would immediately wipe off the entire 350 we're providing to, to, for, for, the, for the unemployed. So we must be careful when we make this judgment, what are the impacts that likely to have on the ready-made commitments. So we are doing that balancing act, as I'm saying, trying to balance act without looking uh, what is we're saying? Why we couldn't make sure that that balance act is effective in the long term and short term? Uh, it sounds like the minister is done. Thank you, sir. The next question is 194, and is asked by Honourable Swart to the Minister of Finance. Minister. 194 from Steve Swartz. Thank <laughs> you. 
Musaan ukrakel. Honorable minister, kau pendule abang balindi. Oh, I didn't know I'm on mute. Oh, sorry. <laughs> With the situation still developing. Honorable so minister, your, the Hello? question you must respond to is 194, asked by Honorable Steve Swart. Let me just check what that question says. It says, A, what does the National Treasury envisage the impact of Russia's invasion on, on you, of Ukraine would be on the economic growth? Is that the question? And I'm trying to answer that question by saying, with the situation still developing and so much uncertain, it is relatively difficult at this stage to quantify the potential impact with precision and confidence. However, South Africa's trade in intensity between South Africa and Russia and Ukraine on aggregate is very small. It's less than 1% of South Africa's total export of goods and imports and, and therefore is, is minimal. A similar number is reflected on important goods that are bo from both these countries. However, within certain industries, the trade exposure is more significant, such as export of citrus, apples, pears, products. There's also another potent. What is difficult is that there's going to be that difficult with, 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 with that. But more challenging would be an indirect impact via uh, the financial flows in different countries, via the, the, the impact, as I'm saying, on, on, on inflation, Via, uh, there's a positive impact via our commodity uh, exports. So at this stage, we can uh, predict with precision. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, uh, Honorable Steve Swart. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Arising from your response, Honorable Minister, the budget review makes it clear that elevated risks to the fiscal outlook include a global or domestic economic slowdown. Now, my question referred to global and domestic, and that could result in lower revenue and greater cause for fiscal support uh, in South Africa. In fact, the review states that, quote, there are significant risks to the global and domestic outlook over the medium term, and that was before the Russian invasion. Now, according to your response, it seems these risks, and they are, um, as you correctly pointed out, they're still materializing, but it does give an indication that the fiscal risk set out in the budget review, quote, global growth could slow more rapidly if supply chain bottlenecks persist, leading to sustained price pressures and rising inflationary expectations. Now, this is what we are seeing globally. We are seeing as well in South Africa that consumers are facing shock increases in consumer inflation, driven by rapidly escalating food and fuel costs um, arising from the disrupted global supply chains. Electricity prices are set to rise. The Reserve Bank expected to increase interest rate hikes, and this will place further pressure on many South African households already struggling to make it month to month and with uh, already constrained finances. However, Minister, I'd like to focus on the expected commodity boom, which resulted in additional revenue of 182 billion being collected for the present financial year, and which is expected to continue in the short term, again resulting in additional revenue. 
Can the Honorable Minister give us an indication? And yes, it could be very early stages yet, but could uh, temporary relief be given to taxpayers or could there even be a, a temporary suspension of part of the fuel taxes and levies referred to in your earlier question, given that the revenue projection for 22-23 is 71 billion higher than last October's projections and that is set to increase. So we're looking for a possible relief, but obviously it's still early stages to consider that. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Honorable Minister. I have indicated to the Honorable Member in answering the previous question that the issue of cushioning the impact, particularly of the fuel price, is a matter which is giving urgent attention in government. And therefore, we will make the necessary announcement soon because it's our intention that such uh, mitigation measures must focus on April and May. I did indicate that to the honorable member that that's what we're working on and the announcement is going to be made soon. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Honorable uh, Abrams, you are asking the second supplementary question. Honorable P.N. Abrams, is anybody standing for her? Uh, uh, honorable members, take charge, otherwise I move. Move, Deputy Speaker. Move. Yes. Deputy Speaker, this hot ever year. I'll take Go. a question on behalf of Honorable Abrams. Go ahead. Well, Honorable Minister, what measures is government putting in place to ensure that South African economy becomes a more low-cost economy with an improving standard of living for our people? as well as the lower cost of doing business so that more jobs can be created for millions of unemployed South Africans. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Thank you. Honorable Minister? I think the Honorable Member is aware that on a long-term basis, government has is, is made the decision to focus on what is called the Reconstruction and Recovery Plan whose elements have to deal with the cost on the South African economy, in particular uh, around the reducing the cost of doing business, intervening in the network industries to make sure that there's competition in those sectors and therefore reduce price. All of those issues are contained in the Economic Recovery and Reconstruction Plan. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Deputy, thank you very much. Uh, Honorable Shivambo, it's your turn. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Deputy Speaker. I will take it on behalf of Honorable Shivambo. Okay, go ahead. Thank you. It's the impact of Russia's special military operations to stop NATO's expansion and not the invasion of Ukraine. The response by the West, especially the self-serving sanctions, have once again proved that nations' sovereignty is protected when the state have the capacity to lead governments 
and the private sector and not when the economy is entirely in the hands of the private sector. And it is the private sector that it takes everything. How are efforts to privatize sports, railways, water and sanitation, strategic uh, sectors such as telecommunication going to assist in making sure that South Africa can be able to to take decisions in the future that are in the interest of its well-being, like Russia is doing today without fear of sanctions or threats of a debt crisis minister. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Honorable Minister. This government has made no intention announcement to privatize ports and rail. What this government has said is that to increase capacity and to introduce capacity in those sectors, we will allow private sector participation. That's what this government has done. And therefore, by taking Port Authority, which is the landlord outside the uh, Transnet table, is to create an environment which is competitive rather than a privatization. The same thing is is, is being applied in rail uh, to introduce competition than privatization. That is strategic thrust this government has taken. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Chair. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Honorable Kwankwa? Minister, in your response to this question, you yourself admitted that trade between South Africa and Russia is very minuscule. You even cited, I think, 1%. And given the fact that your government seems to have adopted a very ambivalent position on that war in Ukraine, in fact, in the majority of instances, you either sit on the fence or uh, favor Russia, is it not logical then for you to follow uh, China's example, since you see nothing wrong with that conflict, uh, to upscale trade with Russia as a way of mitigating the impact of this? I want to hear your clear position because China has done that because they sit on the fence on one instance. On the other instance, they sound to be pro-Russia like yourselves. Thank you. Uh, Honorable Minister. First and foremost, we do not have an ambivalent position and we don't favor Russia. We have made our position quite clear that we don't support any war. We are a peace-loving nation. Our support is a support for peace and a negotiated settlement in Russia. That's the, our position. And in Russia and Ukraine, the Trade relationships are not a matter of that were created by a decree. Trade relations are evolve out of understanding of the market forces at play between the two countries. And that relationship over the years has developed not by decree from government. For instance, a, a number of these products that are being supplied to Russia, for instance, by as citrus farmers was not through a decree by a government. It was in through an understanding and by our uh, private sector and, uh, and understanding that market and managed to supply them with citrus. So it's not a decree by a government. There's no way you can say the South African government therefore is going to decree that as from today we'll trade more with Russia. Uh, the second point is that there, there is and, 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 and an international effort to, so, 
to, uh, to isolate Russia. Whatever our position on the uh, war in Ukraine and Russia, we as a nation have got to say what is in the interest of, this, of the South African nation. As a nation, we've got to selfishly guard our own interests. All those factors were taken into account as we observe the developments in this, in this war. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Uh, the next question is 192, asked by Honorable Sheikh Imam to the Minister of Employment and Labor. Honorable Minister. Thank you. At, at least the, the conditions of work are starting to come right. Uh, thank you, uh, Deputy Chairperson and uh, the and members, the Honorable Sheikh Imam. The, the focus of Inspectorate is to enforce compliance with all the employment laws that are regulated by the Department of Employment and, and Labor in all workplaces that are inspected, regardless of who owns them. Non-compliance is not racialized. As a result, the Dell doesn't have such racial breakdowns in their reporting. So the issue of dealing with the employment of undocumented workers is not just within the jurisdiction of Dell. When we come across these irregularities, we pass it to the Home Affairs. In many instances, we conduct those together with Home Affairs and, uh, and the police, and they are able to take immediate action where is necessary. And there has never been a need to arrest or charge departmental officials for failing to ensure compliance of the labor laws on the racial basis. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Member, uh, Honorable Minister. Honorable Sheikh, Imam. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Honorable Minister, I think you're out of touch with the reality. Yeah, I think you are aware of political parties that also in the hospitality industry went to restaurants. The question I want to ask you, will you be able to consider your labor department and inspectors, and I'll give you a good example in Itegwini in Durban, to show you the register of all the businesses that they are supposed to be going and visiting regularly, which they do, and how many of these businesses have they found in violation of the labor laws in this country. And when I say this, I'm saying specifically Itegwini in Durban. This happens all over the country. I'm talking about Itegwini. Remember, there is a register when they leave, where they go, which businesses they go and visit. They do go there. They go back, of course. And the question is, why do they go back without intervening? Because people in the country and foreigners are earning 60 rand a day, which is 300 rand a week. And yet we have minimum wage of 4,000 rand in the country and very little or nothing is happening about it. So your response, I'm not satisfied, Minister, because it's not answering to the question that I'm actually asking you. Are you now going to be willing to look into this matter and, and, and investigate it yourself to ensure that there is compliance? We definitely are looking into this matter, but not on a racialized basis, as you have asked the question. Remember that in this country, we have 
approximately 4.1 million businesses. And as a department, we set our own annual targets, visiting those employment uh, places in order to um, assess what's going on there. And this also takes into consideration what we would call the resources that are at our disposal and even what we call regional spread. So we do it all over the country. And when we're not satisfied, we go back and visit. But what we don't want is generalized information. If there are specific, specific areas of concern, you can write to us and then we'll go immediately to those areas if there are serious violations or there are violations. But we do this every day with our inspectors. Thank you. Thank you. Honorable Nontele, it's your turn to ask the second supplementary question. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Honorable Minister, I'm sure of the I'm sure I'm not sure of the ratio of inspector is to business establishment. Perhaps you may remind me of that. But what I'm sure about is that one of the hindrances of bettering that ratio is financial constraint. Now, Minister, don't you think that taking the route of public employment programs by introducing what I may term labor inspection aids or assistance will go a long way to mitigating <laughs> some of the challenges in the inspection and enforcement of labor laws? Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Thank you, Honorable uh, Deputy Speaker. Well, the Dell is a signatory to the International Labor Organization in terms of the guidelines which are provided by the ILO to member states with regards to the ratio of inspector to employees. And I can state the following. One inspector per 10,000 employees in the industrial markets and one inspector per 20,000 employees in the transitional economies, similar to us as South Africa, and one inspector per 40,000 employees in less developed countries. So that benchmarking of the ratio of inspectorate should be done per the number of employees, not employers because of the varying number of employees that can be employed by a single employer. So currently there are around 14.1 million people that are employed as in November 21, uh, 2021 in terms of the quarterly labor service. So the department has 1,951 inspectors. Uh, this is against a total of this 14.3 million I'm talking about, which provides a ratio of one inspector to 7,330. Of course, this is in line with the industrial countries. So Dell is always looking at the various means to beef up the capacity where viable. Currently, we are looking into increasing our capacity to strengthen the enforcement of some of our employment laws, such as the Compensation of Occupational Injuries and Disease Act and the Employment Equity Act. Thank you. Thank you, Minister. Uh, uh, Honorable Kadu, 
urge your turn to ask the third supplementary question. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Minister, we know that one of the employers implicated in this question is Huawei, and that the Department of Employment and Labor found Huawei guilty of non-compliance with employment equity legislation. We also know that the department reached an out-of-court settlement with Huawei earlier this month. Now, leaving aside the madness of various aspects of employment equity provisions and the undercapacitation of the labor inspectorate, is it true that the department took a very long time to finalize this matter and challenge Huawei because of political considerations and sensitivities? And that unlike other employers, Huawei received preferential treatment in the out-of-court settlement. Honorable Minister. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. I'm not sure what Honorable Cardo is making reference to because it's for the first time that we're taking head on a big company. It's for the first time that it has happened in South Africa. And our approach has always been not punitive, but corrective. And once people then do not listen for the first time, definitely we go for punitive measures. Remember that uh, they had gone to the extent of going to court, like many of the other employers do in this particular country, where they run into court and um, once they see that in court it's hot, they would request for a settlement. And the settlement we have reached with where we are satisfied that it's taking us forward because they have agreed in that technical area to train a number of young people in the disadvantaged areas or from the disadvantaged areas of this particular country. I am not sure about this selective approach. All I can say is for the first time we've taken head on a very big company like Huawei. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Honorable Konto. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Deputy Speaker. Minister, the exploitation of both South African and non-South African by industry is reaching crisis levels. In the Western Cape, most recently, there was a fight between Lesotho and Zimbabwe nationals on who is entitled to be employed more on these funds. Why has your department not paid special attention to the exploitation of black workers, particularly on the farms of the Western Cape? Thank you, Speaker. Honorable Minister. We are paying attention to the farm workers, the most exploited all over the country, not just in the Western Cape. And we know that they are working under the most difficult uh, conditions. So even in our inspections, we always go to farms where sometimes we are confronted by very arrogant uh, farmers who sometimes do not even want to open their farms and were even forced to call the police in order to have access to that. So we are dealing with, with, with those issues. In relation to the clashes which we have just seen between Basutu and uh, the Zimbabweans, um, the second day there was that conflict. Our department was there 
to try and first mediate uh, those issues. But part of the problem is what we are addressing in the national uh, proposed national labor migration policy, the issue of putting in undocumented people into this particular country. But when there's such violence, such clash, first things first is to mediate that there's no violence, there's peace. Then other issues follow. Like we have said, we are, we are investigating how those employers, and I think time has come that we put the ball in the court of the, of the employers who deliberately want um, to exploit this cheap labor. In fact, truth be told, we need to come up with very harsh punitive measures against the employers who are violating the law. Thank you. Thank you, Minister. Uh, the next question is 182, asked by Honorable N.J. Kubek uh, to the Minister of Communication and Digital Technologies. Honorable Ministers, Honorable Malati requests that you slow down your pace of responding uh, so that he hears you better. Honorable Minister. Thank you, Deputy Chairperson. Unfortunately, members will have to bear with me. In terms of my own biology, my processing speed is very fast, so I can't slow down when I speak. This is the pace that I speak. It's medically tested. You can, if you want, we can get the doctors to test. So I have to, I'll try, but I'll have to, my processing is the, is the processing speed of the brain. It then determines the pace of how I speak. When I joined the department, there was no social compact in place. However, we are working with both the industry key role players, including traditional leadership, to, to create a social compact towards digital inclusivity or to bridge the digital divide towards making the digital economy a dominant economy in, the, in South Africa. In countries that are succeeding in the implementation of digital economy, the small and medium companies, or what is known as startups in the ICT sector, have been key players. On our part, for the implementation of the Broadcast Digital Migration Project, we have um, 886 installer companies that have been contracted, which is an increase from 396 as of January 2022, 31st January 2022. This capacity continues to be ramped up with the project implementation. The increase of installer com uh, companies also translates to a number of jobs, the increase in the number of jobs that are created through the project. In addition, through the increase in the number of TV channels, we are envisaging a boom in the, uh, of the creative industry for more artists, producers, and others in the creative industry sector, having more platforms to generate income and create their own jobs. On the Another project uh, program that the department has developed is to ensure that the country has 80% internet access in the next uh, three years through the SA Connect and will create more opportunities for small and medium enterprises to, uh, to create jobs and also to have opportunities. This project is estimated to provide employment opportunities of more than 3,696 people made out of skilled professionals and semi-skilled labor force. The estimated number of SMME opportunities required for the program are 75 companies for core network building, uh, access network service providers, and in internet service providers, or what is known as mobile virtual network operators. Thank you, uh, Deputy Speaker. Thank, thank you very much, Honorable Minister. The first supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable N.J. Upega. Uh, thank you, House Chair. It's a, a, a follow-up question, uh, House Chair. Uh, 
Thank you very much, uh, Minister, with the response. Uh, I think you've managed to cover also what I was going to ask to say. Please elaborate on your initiatives to ensure that the youth is skilled and empowered to start their own business and tap into the opportunities that exist and those that will be provided through BDM project, such as the creation of uh, 102 TV stations, as you have mentioned, uh, Honorable uh, Minister. Thank you, House Chair. Thank, thank you, Honorable Member. Honorable Minister. Thank you, Honorable House Chair. I could add on the response that I've already provided. Through the BGM project, we had to register indigent households to, for the, to get government support. To date, we've registered 1.4 million indigent households for that support. But what we have learned in the process, because the process was manual, we are going to go and employ data capturers to transfer that information that is in the forms that are in SAPO to the system of STB registration. That system we are estimating that will, uh, will be able to contract more than 3,000 data capturers immediately. And they are not just going to translate that information into an electronic version of information, but we want to create a single view of an indigent, which will be useful for municipalities on their system of the indigent register, because we are envisaging a, a, a future or a tomorrow that does, that municipalities do not have to create annually indigent registers, but they can update the indigent register. This is part of our movement towards the digital economy to allow government to have a single view of a citizen and give services in an integrated man manner, both from national, provincial, and local uh, government level as part of the district-based development model. Thank you, Honorable House Chair. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The second supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable Tipa Rani. Thank you, Mudula Stulo. Chairperson, in light of the fact that the twin challenges facing South Africa today are low economic growth and rising unemployment, what guarantees can the minister give this house that the jobs created through the social impact program in her department will not be manipulated like we have seen in the, in the past, like the EPW uh, programs, as well as the PEE scandals that the country faces and that were only earmarked for card-carrying members of the ruling party. Thank you. Honorable Minister. Thank you, Honorable House Chair. I do not know what the member is talking about manipulation of any information, including on EPWP. The EPWP is, is statistics are those employed and are paid through the personal system of government, so they are traceable. But what we are doing as a, as a department, not only for ourselves, the system that we're talking about, we want to give traceability of every person employed in the project, not only on the BDM project or with the data capturers, but also in other government projects, because we want to use biometrics to make sure that a person cannot be Kumbuzoni Chaveni twice, but there's only one Kumbuzoni Chaveni with a particular ID number, except my brother's daughter, who is named after me, who has also difficult, different biometrics uh, uh, profile. Thank you, Honorable House Chair. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Uh, Chairperson, for the record, Akamuta Minister. The third supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable V. Pambo. Uh, I am. I will be. Where did you see that? Tell me online. 
meetings. Honorable Pambo. Uh, thank you, Chairperson. Honorable Madoko will be taking the question. Okay. Thank you. Uh, digital technology was supposed to provide more options, lower costs, and possibly free television without the need for a new television set for South Africans. Over the last 10 years, South Africa has failed to ensure that this transition from analog to digital takes place. We've observed how slowly your department has progressed in making this transition. What effect will this transition have on citizens who haven't changed their television sets to digital? And will your department ensure small operators and unemployed youth are involved in ensuring this transition? Thank you, Honorable Member. The Honorable Minister. Thank you, Honorable House Chair. Obviously, myself and Honorable Madoke, we are living in different countries. We have gazetted a date of the 31st of March, 2022, as the analog switch of date, which means we are going digital on the 30, from the 1st of April, 2022, unless the court case determines differently. But we are confident that the court will side with us because we've done everything on our power. And Honorable Madoke raises a question of saying, what about the households who have not applied or who do not qualify? And I'm rephrasing a question so that we can give clarity because it's an important question. Uh, who do not qualify for government subsidy and they cannot afford to buy new television sets? What, we, what technology has done with the ordinary, um, ordinary antenna, what is not called uh, aerial in townships and rural areas, they can using their own TVs because we have ensured DTT coverage, 84% digital coverage of the country and 16% satellite coverage. They can, with their own current television, with their, current, with their old uh, antennas, they can route within the uh, 50 kilometer radius of a tower. They can route, they, they can res, uh, reset their TVs to watch digital television. I've responded to the question of the small players participating when I responded to the earlier question by Honorable Kubega in terms of the number of installers that we are using, but also the, 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 the participation of the creative industries when we, when we increase the number of uh, TV channels that are available. And also the Minister of DTIC for those who will be replacing their TVs because the TV is not about the number, the years that you keep. The TV blows up, the TV loses guarantee, they lose all of those things. They have to be replaced. Minister of uh, Trade and Industry is working on uh, prohibiting the importation of analog televisions in South Africa. Thank you, Honorable House Chair. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Uh, the Honorable Majosi. Last supplementary question. Thank you, Honorable House Chair. Uh, Honorable Minister, bringing the divide digital requires that we start to integrate ICT in our communities to at grassroots level and small operators and SMMEs are the closest contact to local communities. And I would like to know whether the department has plans over the next financial year to provide network access to rural communities and how will schools teachers and learners benefit from the excess? If none, why? If so, please provide an outline of your plans as a department. Thanks. Thank you, Honorable Member. Honorable Minister. Honorable House Chair, thank you for that question. We have indicated and we, we the president announced that we are going to roll out SA Connect. And SA Connect, that, and we revised the model of SA Connect from connecting only government institutions, but also to include connecting 
communities. We have indicated that over the next three years, we're going to connect 44,000 government institutions. That means connecting schools, connecting clinics and uh, hospitals, public clinics and hospitals, traditional authority offices who are located in communities, libraries and Tucson service centers that are in communities. But over and above that, we are going to connect over 33,000 community Wi-Fi hotspots in the communities across the, the, the country to make sure that communities can have access to that. And we have indicated now when I was responding to the question of Honorable Kubeka that we are going to use the local SMMEs who are network providers themselves who are MVNOs or what we call mobile virtual network operators who are ISP providers. That's what we are going to use in those areas. And even the installers that we are using now, some of them are going to be migrated into that program because some of this work includes cabling and installation of, um, of, of fiber technology. And that's what's, going, that's, what's going, that's what's going to happen. And the necessary details the uh, members will find in the um, annual, in the corporate plan or, uh, of our entities, Centec and BBI, and CETA. And also we are going to announce together with uh, ICASA on the commitments that the, the, the telcos uh, are going to roll out as part of the social obligations of the spectrum rollout. We've guaranteed that we're going to announce the uh, annual implementation plan for the next 36 months. So those are the necessary details. Thank you, Honorable House Chair. Thanks, Minister. Uh, question number 212 from the Honorable Malati to the Minister of Communications and Digital Technologies. Honorable Minister. Thank you, Honorable House Chair. The levels of details of how the department is going to ensure financial sustainability of the South African Post Office are contained in the, the plans of support of tomorrow's strategy and the implementation plan, which was shared with the portfolio committee whilst protecting the commercial sensitive information of SAPO go to uh, market strategy. SAPO has repackaged its service offering and they will soon be announcing same when they become ready to launch. These areas include SAPO as a business digital hub in rural areas and townships, SAPO as a trust center in the age of biometrics, SAPO as an e-commerce hub and integrator for South Africa and the continent, and SAPO as a government service center, in particular for rural areas and townships. I have committed to the uh, portfolio committees on keeping the, a close eye in the implementation of the strategy, which they will be entailed also in the corporate plan of SAPO and will continuously give an update to cabinet and the committee on key milestones of the SAPO of tomorrow strategy and its implementation plan. Thank you very much. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The first supplementary question, Tademalati. Um, thank you, House Chair. Minister Zuinondova, uh, but let's start from the beginning. There is no doubt the post office is in financial distress. If you look at its liabilities, it owes Postbank 2.5 billion, it owes Telcom 269 million, it owes SARS 624 million. And I know, Minister, that you know, the government you serve in has ideological fidelity towards state ownership. But is it actually reasonable to insist with this persistence when SAPO has been unprofitable for 10 years, that even with getting the funding that you need, it will not be profitable for the first two years? What are your reasons for opposing pursuing the route that the government took with telecom, for instance, by making the space for partial private ownership in order to revive um, this entity to fulfill its basic mandate and reduce the load that it increasingly has become dependent on bailouts for survival? Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Uh, the minister. 
Honorable thank Minister. You, thank you, Honorable House Chair. I think we need to go back to Dr. Malazi and remind him that even with the partial privatization of telecom, it, took, it still took telecom 10 years to become financially sustainable. And we are saying, as we are today, SAPO is not in a position that you can say you successfully, unless you give it away for a rent, you will successfully get a private a, a private stake in there. Because anybody else who's coming up and saying they want a private stake in, in SAPO, they were the ones who contributed to the crippling of SAPO. What we are saying is that SAPO is a critical a government service center in rural areas where Mr. Malaysia does not reside, where our people must continuously go to service. And as of now, support has to be turned around and repositioned. And we have not claimed that is going to be easy, the repositioning of SAPO. We have indicated that we are going to work with SAPO, and that's why Minister, uh, Mr. Honorable Malazi is indicating that the turnaround plan is clear on when we'll start to achieve financial sustainability. And because we've put a concrete plan, we want to be given an opportunity to deliver that which you've said we'll deliver with SAPO. We are confident in the leadership. We are confident not only of the plans, but the work that SAPO is undertaking now with private sector, because we are talking about a partnership with the private sector. It doesn't mean we need to privatize SAPO. We can partner with the private sector to add value to SAPO and to grow SAPO. SAPO is no longer going to be seen as competition to private competitors, but as a critical uh, partner to their delivery of their own services that whilst generating its own revenue and income for its own financial sustainability. Thank you, Honorable House. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The second supplementary question, Honorable Kupega. Thank you, House Chair. Uh, Honorable Minister, as you might be aware, there have been some individuals, such as its former Chief Executive McBans, who have publicly expressed their interest to invest in SAPO through some form of public-private partnership. Is this something that government will be considering at all? If not, why not? If yes, what are the relevant details? Thank you, Minister. Thank you, Honorable Member. The Honorable Minister. Thank you, Honorable House Chair. Uh, uh, for the starters, uh, Minister Mark Barnes must first come and explain why he could not turn around SAPO with the 3.5 billion rands injection of uh, bailout funds that he was given by National Treasury without any conditions before we consider him uh, eligible for a, a partnership because where I'm sitting and given the period that Mac, Mr. McBans was a CEO of SAPO, I start to wonder whether he did not cripple SAPO so that he could later come back and want to, 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 to buy SAPO because he wants 51% of that SAPO in, in what we call in business throwing the javelin. So I'm not comfortable talking about Mr. McBans until we understand the details of his period of tenure and what we did with the bailout because we have engaged with the unions in, in SAPO and they've indicated that the money was not used for its intended purposes in terms of the bailout, but we don't want to go into that detail. Like I've indicated, explaining to Honorable Malazi, SAPO is uh, working at, currently on partnerships with private players, not as stake, uh, not as equity partners, but as uh, service partners to deliver. It's not only its mandate, but to also help those players to, to, to participate, but whilst generating revenue, because SAPO cannot be used to become a host to deliver people to the river whilst it cannot drink the water itself. So SAPO is going to generate revenue from the partnership with private players and also with other international uh, uh, players in the space. And they've already started working on those details and will share with the portfolio committee and cabinet when the time is right. Thank you. 
Thank you, Honorable Minister. The third supplementary question is from the Honorable Pamba. Uh, Member Madoko will take the question, Chair. Awesome. Um, our Minister, the post office has asked for about 9 billion rent bailout from the National Treasury in order to stay afloat. What scenarios have you developed to keep the entity afloat should the National Treasury refuse to bail you out? If they do bail you out, please outline the specific actions you will be undertaking to ensure that the entity never finds itself in financial distress again. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Member. Honorable Minister. Thank you, Honorable House Chair. I'm going to reiterate. SAPO has not requested for a 9 billion rents bailout from National Treasury. I'm the one who signed the letter requesting 1.6 billion from National Treasury. That is required by SAPO over a three-year MTEF period. So there's no 9.9 billion that is requested by SAPO. The 9 billion, maybe you are referring to the, to the amount that National Treasury has bailed out SAPO during the, including the period under Mr. McBans. Where we are, we have indicated and uh, and the, the EFF were represented in the portfolio committee, the SAPO of tomorrow strategy and the implementation plan, which we said we are going to up, uh, continuously update the portfolio committee on key milestone. I've earlier referred to some of the areas that the, 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 the turnaround uh, strategy or the repositioning strategy or SAPO of tomorrow strategy uh, uh, covers uh, without disclosing the commercially sensitive uh, uh, information of SAPO. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The last supplementary question is from the Honorable Zat Majose. Thank you, Honorable House Chair. Uh, Honorable Minister, uh, you have uh, responded to part of the question that I'm going to ask, but the post office, as we all know, that it's in dire need of a real leadership that can find a turnaround strategy while adapting it to a current uh, market development. I would like to know that uh, since SAPO is in debt, in all of its rental agreements, how will this department implement the recent adopted financial strategy in light of its current uh, debts and making sure that also uh, SAPO is able to sustain itself going forward? Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Member. Um, Honorable Minister. Uh, the Honorable Minister. Thank you, Honorable House Chair. As I've uh, indicated earlier, the SAP of tomorrow strategy was developed not by the ministry, but the uh, board of SAPO and the management of SAPO, and also with the input of the Department of Communications and Digital Technologies. And when we, when I joined the department, I must indicate I was told SAPO is going to be in day zero on the 30th of September, and that day zero kept on shifting. And today, SAPO has, is not in day zero because the management and the board of SAPO has been doing the best within their abilities to keep SAPO afloat, of course, with the support of the department. We continue to work with them, including implementation of some of the services that we are contracting SAPO to render on behalf of government because they've demonstrated in terms of the plans that they are submitting to us that they can have the capacity to implement. We have engaged with labor directly with the representative of the dominant unions within SAPO and also management has engaged with labor. We've got the full support of the stakeholders, both uh, employees of SAPO who are unionized and the non-unionized to make sure that the implementation of the strategy is successful. And for that reason, we have agreed with the board of SAPO that the strategy is going to be converted into the corporate plan of SAPO from 2022-23 financial year for the outer period of three years. Thank you, Honorable House Chair. Thank you, Honorable Minister. 
question number 223 is from the Honorable Shibambu, the Minister of Communications and Digital <laughs> Technologies. The Honorable Minister. As, Chair, I thought 223 is to Minister of Finance. Uh, what I have here yeah. is question 223. Uh, can I have a look at this? Is the Honorable, yes, it says NF Shivambu to ask the Minister of Finance. But what I have in front of him, me is different. Okay, Honorable Minister of Finance, you're welcome. South Africa currently has a number of state banks, including the Development Bank of Southern Africa, the Industrial Development Corporation, Land Bank, and many other development finance institutions. The Department of Communications and Digital Technologies is also in the process of finalizing legislative amendment to the South African Post Bank Act so that the Post Bank can be in a position to finalize its application for a banking license from the Prudential Authority of the South African Reserve Bank. The key question to consider is with regard to state with regard to state-owned banks, is whether current state banks are performing as expected to meet the mandates expected of them. It is also important to determine what market failure and gap each existing state bank seeks to address and what remaining gaps or problems we're trying to solve before coming up with solutions. We also need to consider the rationalization and consolidation of some existing state finance institutions where overlapping mandates exist. In identifying the market failure and gaps to be addressed, it's necessary to establish the structure, funding model, feasibility, and ultimate sustainability of any state bank. Each state bank needs to determine its own business model and whether it can also serve service a market that may not be adequate to service by existing banks. This means that there needs to be a clear balance between providing access to finance and to underserviced market, that's market failure, and pricing in of risk to ensure sustainability. It is even more important to do so in the current climate, where we face such significant fiscal challenges applied in the 2022 budget speech. It is imperative that no state bank be, bad, be a burden on the fiscals and that all state banks must be able to generate sufficient own revenue to fund their operations. The country does not have the funds to inject equity into any state bank, even as we face challenges to some existing state banks. The country also needs to learn the lessons from recent bank failures in South Africa. All banks need to be managed prudently at all stages, with the highest regard for sound corporate governance practices and ethical conduct. Banking is a risky and complicated business based on trust with no guarantee of success. That is why they are regulated so intrusively and intensively. If any bank lends recklessly or is managed poorly and so in, and, and frightened by its board of and management, such bank will fail and face the prospect of closure, as was the case with the African Bank in 2014, VBS in 2014. And in conclusion, as noted, 
in A above, the process going forward is to, is to determine whether current state banks are performing as expected to meet the mandates expected of them, and whether government would need to consider the rationalization and consolidation of some existing state finance institutions where overlapping mandates exist. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The first supplementary question asked by the Honorable Shivambo was going to take it. Thank you very much, um, House Chair. I will take it on behalf of the Honorable Shivambo. Go ahead, Honorable Natasha. Thank you very much, Minister. I, I think your government don't have the appetite um, or the, the political will on truly investing in and, and, and on a state-owned bank. You have been for years now sitting on, on research, research this and research that. So I, I just think that there's no political will from the government side. Um, June 1st, 2021, the South African Reserve Bank announced that it will pro start a process to dispose of 50% shareholding in African Bank Holdings Limited, giving the conflict of, as the regulator, the significant shareholder and the lender of the last report. Yesterday, sir, the Reserve Bank just announced that none of the parties that have shown interest were suitable. And now they, wa they want to follow the initial public offering um, route. Shouldn't African Bank Holdings Limited form the basis of creation of a state bank and, and stop this thing of research, this and that? Give us a concrete answer why your government uh, is just gasping from pillar to post or not starting a state uh, bank, sir. Not this of research. It's been years in the making of, of, of this government, finance minister in and out, telling us research this and that. Give us a concrete answer. What is the real reason um, you are not starting a state-owned uh, bank? Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Member, Honorable Minister. And maybe the minister, uh, the honorable member has not listened carefully. I said, we do have existing state banks. They perform different mandates and different functions. For instance, the post bank is one of the banks that takes a is a deposit taking bank. Other banks are lending, which is a, a function of what a bank would do. We then make a second point that says we will tie and rationalize and, con and consolidate where overlap is necessary. And thirdly, if we're going to put money into the, the African bank, should we dis uh, not put money in the, should we close the post bank? So those are the choices this government was make. Our view is that we have the banks and the institutions which are necessary to perform all these functions. In so far as the post bank is concerned, we're putting money into it. All we need is to finalize legislative changes to the Post Bank Act. Whereas, in, 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 if we to, if they want us to, uh, uh, we go to the to the private bank. Well, we've got to raise money, and I've said there's no money for that. And but we have banks. Thank you, Honourable Minister. The second supplementary question is from the Honourable PM Abrams. Uh, 
Thank you, Osha. We'll be taking the, question, the supplemental question. Thank you, Minister, for the response. Um, given that the creation of a state bank is a resolution that comes from the, 60, the 52nd National Conference of the African National Congress that was held in 2007. Minister, what have been, been the stumbling blocks that have delayed its implementation that your department has been seeking to resolve? How will the mandate of the state bank be different to those of the existing privately owned uh, banks? Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Member. Honorable Minister. I said we have a number of banks which are lending in, in, in providing lending into the market. Number of them. The, all, the most of them do not have deposit taking mandate. Only the post bank has that. Where therefore, there's legislation therefore in parliament to amend uh, the post bank, uh, the post office act to allow the post bank to be able to apply to extend the scope. So what is basically is a legislative arrangement. Once we finish that, that legislation, the post bank will exist as a state bank and a deposit taking institution and it will cooperate and work with existing development finance institutions to broaden the lending base of the state. I don't think there's much of a problem in this, in this arrangement. Once the legislation is through, which is amending the Postbank Act, we will be rolling. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The third supplementary question is from the Honorable A.M. Imam. Uh, thank you very much, House Chairperson. Minister, I think the point we're trying to make is that there is a need for a fully-fledged state bank, like the Big Four, Big Five that you have, providing all the facilities that the Big Four or Five banks offer. Now, you cannot deny this, Minister, that there is a monopoly by the financial institutions in this country. First of all, you saw the collusion and how they closed the bank accounts of the second Jala group. Of course, the court has now asked them to reopen the one account. Now, what is your department minister going to do about protecting these businesses who create uh, uh, hundreds uh, of thousands of jobs in this country and ensure that a state bank is created so that it, there could be more competition so that the cost of doing business in terms of uh, uh, getting loans, in terms of the interest you pay, and you know competition is good Thank you. for business. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Member. Honorable Minister. Honorable Minister. I, I suspect he's already going into question 193, which is his question. I'm not going to answer that. I'll answer that there. The main issue here is that if you want any state institution to get a loan from any institution, there's a myriad of these institutions. Uh, you've got the land bank, you've got the, the development bank, you've got IDC, you've got CIFA, you've got NEF, you've got um, PIC, 
The only limitation all of these institutions don't have is deposit taking. Now, we are putting legislation in parliament which will allow the only deposit taking institution to expand its scope to be a fully fledged bank, which is the post office. Now, I don't know why there's a resistance. Uh, people want us to push us to new things. When we want to utilize the existing things which we have and we've got an obligation to them. The Minister of the, uh, uh, Communication and Digital Communication has already said is they're putting a request to Treasury of 1.6 billion rand in order to assist the post bank and its, and its subsidiaries. Now, if we're going to be putting money into the post bank and also putting money into creating a new one, I don't think we'll be using the taxpayers' money in a more efficient and effective way. Thank you, Chairperson. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The Honorable MGE. Let me, make, let me make one point, Chairperson. Let me make one point. The notion that a state bank will not be regulated like all other banks is misplaced. The state bank will be regulated, will fall under the same regulation things that require that is applicable to all banks, and therefore any banker or clients of a, a state bank will conform with the same regulatory framework. We want we, that we must make that clear. Uh, thank you, Honorable Minister. Hey, Mara, which, which bank now? What is talking the last about? supplementary questions from the Honorable Hendricks? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Honorable House Chair. Honorable House Chair, five years ago, the African National Congress had a position paper on creating a state bank and adopted a, a resolution, and that formed a part of their manifesto. In fact, Al Jamal contributed to the uh, to the uh, position because we we had an expert that would assist the state bank to be interest free. Uh, has the minister looked at the position paper and the deliberation at that conference five years ago? And why is government not implementing a resolution of the of the governing party? Thank you, honourable member, honourable minister. The resolution of the governing party talk, uh, talks about a state bank. And we're implementing that, that resolution by making the post office and changing legislation is to giving effect to that resolution, to making sure that this post bank becomes a fully fledged state bank. We're not, we're in keeping with that resolution. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Question number 183 has been asked by the Honorable Kaiso to the Minister of Finance. The Honorable Minister. Thank you, House Chair. First, the government cannot force any company to invest in our economy. And the best way to encourage such investment is to create an attractive and a climate for investment in our country. Key factors to facilitate investment include the construction and maintenance of infrastructure, access to markets, political and policy certainty, 
access to skilled labor. Attractive investment in our economy requires a package of measures that consist of both tax and non-tax that is structural alongside the rate reduction in corporate income tax. National Treasury and the Presidents, through Operation Vulindel, are supporting the implementation of key structural reforms to promote economic recovery and growth. The envisaged economic reforms are designed to support rapid and inclusive growth by reforming network industry to modernize and transform the economy. Lower barriers to entry to, ma- uh, to make it easier for business to start, grow, and compete. Create greater lever- levels of economic inclusion and address high levels of economic concentration. Result in high levels of employment as growth accelerates. Restructuring the, uh, the corporate income tax regime is an important complement to this endeavor and is aimed at enhancing equity and efficiency. Research done by the OECD and the Davis Tax Committee show that an increase in corporate income tax rate has the largest negative impact on economic growth compared to other types of tax increases. Higher corporate income tax rates reduce the incentives for companies to invest in the economy. Capital is mobile and and many corporates operate on a global scale, which allows them the advantage to choose where they want to locate their, their business. As a result, governments around the world continue to compete for investment by making their countries an attractive investment destination. While there has been a global downward trend in corporate tax rates, South Africa's corporate income tax rate had remained unchanged since 2008, with many of our key trading and investing investment partners reducing their rates. This has led to growing gap in the tax rate differential, reducing the competitiveness of South Africa as an investment destination and providing a strong incentive for companies to shift profits out of South Africa. Lowering the corporate income tax rate will reduce these barriers and create a more conducive environment for corporates to invest in our, in our economy. In addition to reducing the corporate income tax rate by one percent point, the corporate income tax package introduced two measures that widen the tax base. One of these measures includes countering tax-based erosion and profit shifting by strengthening the rules that restricts multinational companies from using excessive interest deductions to minimize taxable profits in South Africa. While some companies will pay more corporate income tax as a result of these measures, all companies in South Africa will benefit from the reduced rate. In this way, equity between smaller standalone companies and multinational companies with operations in South Africa will be improved as purely domestic companies do not have global links and that enable them to do them to avoid tax through profit shifting. South Africa has also introduced a number of measures over the past two decades to try and restrict uh, profit sh- shifting and both eroding. Besides domestic measures, South Africa is party to multinational tax processes and Thank agreements. You very much, that, Thank you, Chair. The first supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable Kaiser. Thank you very much, uh, House Chair. Uh, Minister, I just want to make a follow-up on the 
And thank you very much for responding on the question asked above. I just wanted to get here, uh, given what some sectors of the society, such as the organized working class have termed an investment strike by corporate South Africa, and the fact that previous government incentive schemes to encourage companies that pay high dividends to their wealthy shareholders to, in, to reinvest in the South African economy have been uh, less successful. Now, my question is, is the government considering measures such as wealth tax on the 354,000 wealthiest individuals, which could raise at least 143 billion rand as argued by the Southern Center for Equality Studies based at Vets University? If not, why not? If yes, what are the relevant details? Thank you very much, Hussein. Thank you, Honorable Member. Honorable Minister. Um, the Honorable Member will know that in the budget speech and, and the budget review, we have not made any reference to the wealth tax. We are not necessarily saying we will not consider if conditions permit. As things stand, we do not know how many of these people, what is the extent of their wealth. What we have introduced, which was not contained in the budget speech, which you, you may find in the budget review, which is public, is some disclosure requirements which are going to be required for people who have got wealth of um, above 50 million. Now, you make reference to 354. I don't know how many people are rich, uh, 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 are candidates for wealth tax if we were to consider it. I don't have the figures. But what we've started doing is to introduce a dis disclosure requirements, which will help us to understand what is the extent of wealth, if any, in this economy. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Honorable Minister. The second supplementary question is from the Honorable D.T. George. Thank you, House Chair. As President Ramaphosa correctly identified in his State of the Nation address, the business sector is the job creator in our economy, especially small, medium, and micro enterprises. The 1% reduction in the corporate tax rate is a welcome step in the right direction, yet hopelessly inadequate. Business, either local or foreign, will not invest in our economy unless it is attractive enough to unlock the available cash reserves. We agree with the minister that an environment conducive to business needs to be created. Has the minister considered evolving a more attractive business ecosystem in South Africa, such as tax holidays and tax exemptions for business that invest in economic enablers, such as infrastructure, energy, water, and education, and dismantling tax barriers to domestic savings outside of pension funds and removing remaining exchange controls. Thank you. Thank you, Honourable Member. Honourable Minister. All policy proposals to attract investment in this, in this economy are on the table. We are prepared to consider a variety of those policy proposals. For instance, the Houghton government is making proposals for uh, 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 some incentive for investing in, in, the, in the townships. 
as part of the township e- e- economy strategy. So what I'm trying to say, all policy proposals are, are on the table, uh, are under consideration. I can't say I can no or yes to anyone. It's going to depend on a number of, of, of issues. What impact will it make on the economy? Uh, what impact will it have on the fiscal framework? Um, and so on. However, I must add, the investment is a function of a number of, uh, of, of, of factors. As I've said in my uh, 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 first paragraph in answering this question, um, it's not only tax holidays alone, a number of things are critical. The infrastructure is part of that. Polling access to markets is part of that. Skilled labor is part of that. So as part of promoting investment in this economy, we are, are working on a variety of things and instruments, including uh, removing barriers and, and red tape, as the president has said. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The third supplementary question from the Honorable Shibambu, who's taking it. It's me again, um, Honorable Chair. Go ahead, Honorable Mthangwini. Thank you. Minister, the EFF raised the issue of aggressive tax avoidance, tax base erosion, and profit shifting in 2014. We made submissions to the David Tax Commission uh, Committee, to SARS, and we even led Parliament to seriously engage in base erosion and profit shifting. We were hopeful when government took our recommendations to establish a central agency that would coordinate the work of SARS, the Reserve Bank, the police, the Financial Intelligence Center, and Home Affairs as far as the border control is a concern. But it is clear that there is no intention to deal with the multinational companies who are all engaged in some form of aggressive tax avoidance and illicit financial flows. Is it not time, Minister, to move away from SARS voluntary basis and start prosecuting these companies involved in wrongdoing? We can't be coming here, year in and year out, talking about this. It's time for action. It's time to prosecute all of these multinational companies that are just taking the ship and taking a plane with all of our monies. Please, act. Honorable Minister. Uh, I can say in brief, Honorable House Chair, I've outlined in, in this presentation and you ran out of time when I was on the both base erosion aspect, trying to clarify what actions were taking together with international bodies such as the OECD and were parties to those agreements. That's broader work we're doing and legislative thing will be coming back to parliament on the legislative side, if the honorable honor member will be pleased to know that. And, so, and lastly, I think if any evidence exists and is submitted to SARS, I would imagine SARS would move with speed in prosecuting such companies. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The last question, the last supplementary question is from the Honorable Butelezi. Thank you, 
Honorable A.M. Bruteleze. Honorable Thank you. I'll just change my. I'll change my. Ah, English in Chile, Kamaram. To Sene. Kapisa to Schengen. Can I proceed? Can I proceed? Yes, Schengen. Honorable Chair? Baba Schengen, Kobaga. Oh, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Uh, Minister, the motive for the reduction in the corporate income tax uh, was to support economic growth, and these changes are to be implemented in a fiscally neutral manner through the introduction of measures to broaden the tax base. Can the minister share details of these planned measures to broaden the tax base over and above the obvious hope that the lower tax rate would encourage additional investment? Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Member. Honorable Minister. Honorable Minister. Uh, sorry, Honorable House Chairperson, I was on mute. I said, in addition to reducing the corporate in terms in income tax rate, we are introducing two other measures which will increase the tax base. One of these measures, we said, include countering base erosion and profit shifting by strengthening the rules and restrict, and restrict multinational companies from using excessive interest rate reduction to minimize taxable profit. That's one instrument. In that, you therefore, so these all of these rules, we are broadening the tax base and domestic companies are not likely to pay more, but multinationals, precisely because of what we've introduced, are likely to pay more. So part all of that is broaden that base and ensure that there's no tax avoidance. So there are instruments which we have put into place, uh, which the Orange member must we, we, we will soon get to know. We'll outline that in detail in, the, in, my, in my reply, which I'm going to finish to the member, because I had to stop before because of time. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Question number 184 has been asked by the Honorable Masaule the Minister of Mineral Resources and Energy. The Honorable Minister. Uh, thank you, House Chair. <clears throat> Strategic stocks are by their nature an insurance that a country has to take in order to be able to respond to catastrophic levels of petroleum sector. In our view, the current conflict in Europe and the impact in the crude oil is likely to lead to such a catastrophe if conflict doesn't end soon. That's why in the discussion with the Minister of Finance, one of the things we did was to give a disclosure that we have 10, billion, 10 million barrels of oil in strategic stock. So whatever interventions are concluded, they will take into account that strategic stock. The department believes that it is better to have a balance between crude oil stocks and finished product stocks. Unfortunately, at this point in time, we're sitting with a strategic stock of crude oil. We don't have finished products. 
and the shift towards refined products is more appropriate given the change in the operating strategies in many refining companies. The planned repurposing of one of the refineries as well as the two refiners that are still out of commission has exacerbated the need to move to refined products. The strategic fuel fund is tasked with investigating workable modalities that will minimize the need for fiscal involvement in such a transition, a transition to, ref, to, to refined products in the short term. Currently, the plan involves using ex, existing crude oil stocks and exchange some of these into refined petroleum products. In order to achieve this, SFF will have to acquire position existing storage terminals to allow for rotation of refined product. So in brief, uh, the size of fuel stock um, is actually part of the envisage mitigation against high prices of petrol. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The first supplementary question is from the Honorable Mashaule. Honorable House Chair, I'm the substitute. Okay, Honourable uh, Honourable Minister, considering that the, the duration of the conflict is likely to have upside risk to the food price inflation and high public transport costs, further eroding the disposable incomes of the poor households, what, what is the department's plan in the interim to find a solution to the, in, the ri, in the rise of oil prices. I thank you very much, House Chairperson. Thank you, Honorable Member. The Honorable Minister. Uh, the Minister of Finance raised the issue that in our discussion, we are putting together a plan that is targeting April and May. The reason for that is that it is anticipated that the, the price of petroleum in April will go out by up to 200 more. So the intervention is intended to mitigate the impact of that increase. And May is the second month, and hopefully by the end of two months, there will be direction taken in the conflict itself. Hopefully a solution being found in the conflict. Uh, the, what we are avoiding at the same time is to avoid creating a, an impression that we can give up a lot of things and derail the fiscal framework that was announced in Parliament. We don't want to do that. We want to intervene, uh, mitigate against the, the impact of the high petrol price. Hopefully, when there is peace, prices will systematically come down. Then we can look into other staggered interventions. As I said, strategic petrol stock is one of that and many other interventions. But it is a plan that is short-term in nature because we don't want people to have a, an issue when there is that intervention. As it is a culture in South Africa, you give a short-term intervention, then society demands that it should be permanent. And it can actually cause a lot of a conflict in society. I think the Minister of Finance estimated uh, uh, that if, for example, we, we temper with taxes and 
levels. It means 7.5 billion rand per, 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 per month. And if we take it for two months, it may be 15 billion rand. And if it is extended beyond that, it will begin to temper with the fiscal framework as determined and presented to Parliament. Thank you, Honorable Minister. The second supplementary question will be asked by the Honorable K.J. Maida. Thank you, House Chair. Minister, amongst the things you're avoiding is calling the situation in Ukraine a war of Russian aggression, but we'll leave that aside for the moment. Minister, this government has known about an impending fuel crisis since at least 2007. In that year, the Murani Commission issued a report which recommended, amongst other things, the creation of a strategic fuel reserve of refined petroleum products. Will you enlighten this House as to exactly how many days cover of refined petroleum products we have if, if supply was disrupted? Um, why the recommendations of the Murani Commission have not been implemented, and why South Africa has no strategic fuel reserve of refined fuel products. Thank you. Honorable Minister. Uh, uh, order, order, honorable members. Uh, because I'm uh, an adult, I'm very allergic to howling. Uh, and, my, and, and my mother taught me, if you shout at me, you make me stupid. So I'm avoiding that. One, uh, it's quite a good question, Simelia, except that you, lie, you ask that question at a wrong time. When there is a crisis facing the country now because of the Russian-Ukrainian Uranium, uh, conflict. Now, we're applying our minds to deal with solutions in respect of the short-term crisis that we're facing. Then the other policy solutions will be attended in due course. So the Murana Commission report will be looked into and, and be followed. But at this point in... Now, no, wait, wait, uh, lower your hands, lower your hands. Uh, it will be followed and looked into if it's still applicable. What is important now is to deal with the question of sharp increases in petroleum price. Uh, because when people go to a petrol station, that is what they understand, is the price of petrol now. So we're working on mitigating uh, uh, implementation formula in the short term. And then we'll apply our mind to policy. We, we, we've talked to the Minister of Finance, talked about looking into the formula of calculating the petrol price. It's, it's there, we're looking into it, but it's a long-term solution. It's not mitigating the crisis that is confronting the country today. We are applying our minds to deal with the crisis confronting the country today, then apply our minds to long-term issues. Thank you. Honourable Chair. House Chair? Yes, My question was not answered. My question was, how many days cover of refined fuel products do we have in South Africa? I didn't ask anything about fuel prices. Honourable Mylan, the Minister has answered to your question. 
If you are not happy with the answer, you know what the process is to follow. Shall we continue? Honorable Matokwe, you're the next. The third thank supplementary you, question. Uh, thank you, House Chair. Uh, Minister, shortly after the conflict in Russia and Ukraine escalated, government scraped around to respond to the looming fuel crisis. The reality is South Africa is still sitting with an elephant in the room. The aftermath resulting from the sale of strategic fuel stock with no one held accountable to date. Rundown facilities, the closure of refineries which are crucial to the country right now, and we simply increase the price of fuel to the detriment of our people. How, in addition to the commitment of the 10 million barrels, does your department intend to ensure adequate supply of fuel for South Africans should the conflict take longer than the projected two or three months? And do these plans include actions around Project Tumtum? Thank you, Honorable Member. Uh, Honorable Minister. Thank you very much. Um, I love uh, Mr. Melam because he has a thin, a thin skin. He jumps around and complain all the time, raise the hands, uh, which doesn't add value to any discussion of policy. He doesn't add any value. You can jump and uh, live the days. What is important is that what is important is that strategic fuel has been recovered. We're having our 10 million uh, barrels of crude oil back, back in our control. Number two, the, 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 the fact that at this point in time, we don't have stock of remind petroleum in the strategic fuel. It's a different matter that we'll look into in moving forward. Strategic stock is not a supply of petroleum. It is an emergency stock that should be used when there is a crisis. And we're looking into it now because there is a crisis. So that's why we say if we want to, to, to intervene effectively, we'll have to take that strategic stock to identify the refineries, to refine it, and get it into the market. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Uh, the Honorable Dr. Boshoff. Thank uh, you, Honorable House Chair. The cost of South Africa being without petroleum was uh, calculated in 2010 at being about 1 billion rand per day, which is probably the best argument for a strategic stock reserve only to be released in, in case of a disaster declared by the minister. Now, that's just a little bit shaky because this government tends to call things disasters, which don't seem like disasters for everyone. Uh, but uh, let's agree that the war in uh, Russia, of, by Russia in Ukraine, uh, is a disaster to be uh, uh, dealt with. Now, the reserve is financed by a levy on the uh, retail fuel price, and there are growing indicators that green hydrogen can, within the next few years, become competitive with fossil fuels. And that is the reason why Cabinet has approved the Hydrogen Society Roadmap. 
However, the whole sub-program of DSI dealing with energy and hydrogen has to get along with a budget of less than 200 million rand per annum. We did not uh, benefit the goal of the strategic stock reserve to set aside one of those cents per liter to finance a more aggressive pursuit of hydrogen power. Thank you, Honorable Member. Honorable Minister. Uh, I'm not sure if I have the authority to declare disasters. Doesn't fall in my portfolio. We're dealing with a disaster that we're confronting uh, because the market behaves in a particular way. When there's a conflict in Russia, between Russia and, and, and Ukraine, it impacts on the overall market. And that market impacts on our situation. And we have a responsibility to deal with that disaster, not declared by me, but as a consequence of the conflict in the, Rus in the Russian-Ukrainian conflict. So to say it is a disaster declared by a minister, I think it's a misnomer. Number two, all the other interventions like Ukraine hydrogen and many other interventions in the energy space are part of the policy that is unfolding. And that's why you'll find out that uh, there is a green hydrogen project that is underway. Uh, for example, IDC and Sasol are having a massive uh, program in that regard. Uh, Anglo Platinum is involved in that program, there are quite a number of initiatives. But those initiatives are not going to resolve the, pro the crisis we're facing today. We must deal with this crisis as we unfold our new policy options to deal with our energy situation as a country. Thank you, Honorable Minister. Question number 185 has been asked by Honorable Volmarans to the Minister of Mineral Resources and Energy. The Honorable Minister. The Honorable Minister. Thank you, Honorable uh, Chairperson. The department believes that uh, burning diesel to generate electricity is not sustainable, generally. Uh, we have, as government, uh, invested in gas infrastructure together with Mozambican government. For example, we are today jointly 80% shareholder of the Romco pipeline from Mozambique to South Africa. We have increased our stake in the Romco pipeline to bring gas from Mozambique to Mpumalanga. And our own share is 40%, another 40% is held by Mozambican government. This will enable any company that wants to bring gas into the country to do so using existing infrastructure. In addition, the government through the CF has issued a request for proposal for a gas aggregator, which will partner with CEF to procure gas for the Cook LNG terminal. This will ensure that molecules of gas are available for use in Kuha area. SFS has applied for Section 79 in terms of the Ports Act. This will enable SFS to be an anchor for any LNG infrastructure that is constructed in the Kuha SZ. We also intend to finalize discussion with uh, uh, Total Energy to unlock the gas that has been found in Southern Cape. The discussion are at an advanced stage, and when finalized, 
could see gas flowing into the Mosulbay area to enable Khorika gas plant and the Petrosa GTL plant and any other new power plants in the area uh, before the end of the decade. So it's a, it's a medium long term plan, but we're working on that plan. That's where we are. Thank you. Uh, the Honorable Volmarans. Uh, thank you, uh, Chairperson, and uh, thank you, Honorable Minister, for uh, the response. However, given that the gas industry is yet to be fully implemented and subsequently also accelerated, and the fact that the drastic increases in the oil prices will likely expose ESCOM to unprecedented load shedding, which has impacted negatively already on the households and businesses. To what extent, with what consequences will the renewable energies provide a buffer energy against the possible load shedding, taking into account the uncertainty of the duration of the conflict we are seeing now? Thank you. The Honorable, the Minister. Uh, thank you, <coughs> the Chairperson. Uh, the gas industry is unfolding. Uh, we swam against the stream of people who just declared a war on anything that looks like fossil fuel and therefore declared their interest in destroying gas industry. Now, I'm sure many of those are now disappointed that Europe has labeled gas and nuclear as part of the green transition. Because that opens up space to appreciate that transition is not an event, but a journey that we must navigate through as a country. Now, uh, therefore, the gas industry is going to be with us in the transition in a big way. The renewable energy, I'm sure when we're answering questions uh, during the sauna, we explained that with all the other interventions that we've made, we've just approved a between of five, which is 2,600 megawatts. We are now putting out a request for proposal for between of six, which is another 2,600. Before the end of this year, we'll put a third bid between of seven, with another 2,600. If you calculate, doesn't need mathematics, just needs arithmetic. It will give you a total of 7,800 megawatts in the pipeline. That is what we're doing. That is acceleration of the implementation of the renewable energy program. But what we're not closing our eyes to is that the renewable energy must be supplemented by other technologies, and we're actually actively managing that reality. Thank you. The Honorable Miller. Thank you, House Chair. Minister, the real challenge of converting to a gas-to-power solution, either as a transitional technology or as a long-term source of electricity, lies in our ability to source store, transport, and utilize gas resources. Now, given that South Africa currently has very limited proven gas resources, 
and our major source of supply, Mozambique, uh, their gas resources are currently in an area of conflict and dispute. Where will we get this gas from in the short term? How will it be delivered and stored uh, in South Africa? And, and what have you done to secure the necessary environmental and port uh, authorizations to make gas to power a reality? Thank you. May I remind members that according to Rule 142, you know that you can ask more than one supplementary question. Uh, you may proceed, the Honorable uh, Minister. Um, yeah, the gas infrastructure is being developed. Now, I always remind my, my friend there, Mr. Miller, that when we introduced renewables here, we had no infrastructure. That's why it was so costly. Between the one cost us 5,524 five cents a unit. Between the 294 cents a unit. Between the 3,174 cents a unit. Between the 4,107 cents a unit. We are not complaining about that because it was a premium that we had to pay to bring a technology into the economy. So another technology will have invest in the infrastructure. And I'm sure you listen very carefully when I talk about LNG infrastructure in Kuha. We're working on that. There is private LNG infrastructure in Richards Bay. Uh, we have just introduced a mini LNG structure in, Mos in, 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 in Saldana. So that infrastructure is going to facilitate development of the gas sector as an economic sector. And we're quite enthused about it because it is quite important to have that infrastructure because if we don't have that infrastructure we'll, imp we'll have to import the infrastructure that's why even the issue of subref is subjected to a discussion that is very involved to try and say we can't collapse subref at this point in time because we need internal refining capacity in addition to our ability to import refined products. So the point I'm making is that infrastructure is developed. Infrastructure doesn't fall from the sky. You'll have to invest in it and develop it. Thank you. We now invite the Honorable Madoko for the third uh, supplementary question. Uh, thank you very much, House uh, Chairperson. Um, Minister, the recent discoveries of gas around South Africa, if properly managed, would be highly beneficial for South Africa, which is currently highly reliant on imported oil and gas. Uh, multinational corporations that have created this nation, their nation's wealth by looting African resources, are the main players in these conversations and stand to benefit most from this gas. What are you doing in your department to protect our natural resources and guarantee that every drop benefits our people and our country and that gas infrastructure and technologies is locally produced? It cannot be right that foreigners can grab our resources simply because they discovered them. Thank you. The Honorable the Minister. Um. One of the issues that um, enthused me is the discovery of gas in our shores, whether it is in Southern Cape, 
whether it is in the Karoo in the form of shale gas, whether it is prospects of discovering in the West Coast or Wild Coast, all that encourages me because I think it will save us from importing all the basic inputs to the economy. Uh, now, I'm not one of those people who, who see foreign investment as an enemy of the country. I don't say that. I, I want investment in the country. Direct foreign investment is part of the necessary elements of increasing investment in the economy. Once there's investment in the economy, then you are having space to, to have a number of options that you can follow. And, and the reason that I'm not an enemy of foreign direct investment is because all my working life, I worked for companies that are regarded as foreign. Uh, your Anglo-American, although it was formed by South African money, it is seen as foreign because it is seen as white monopoly capital. I don't see that. I see it as a necessary company that should be here, that must stay here. I see companies needing to invest in our economy for our economy to grow. In this day and age, uh, equity holding has no home because you list a company in the stock exchange and many shareholders from various countries buy the shares. So it's quite a, a strange philosophy that foreign direct investment is the enemy. It's not the enemy. It must be attracted. And we must encourage our own people to invest in companies that are active in our economy more and more. Thank you. Thank you. The last uh, on this question, supplementary question from the Honorable Singh. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Honorable Chairperson. Honorable Minister, you are quite enthused today. And I think we'll all feel very enthused, you use the word twice, when we can move from a ratio of using coal to provide energy, which is 89% compared to gas, which is 3%. Now, uh, Honorable Minister, you've spoken about the importing of gas and our shareholding in the Mozambique pipeline. What I'd like to know, the direct question is, of the eight. 0.5 billion rand soft loan that was granted by rich countries at COP26 in Scotland. Has there been any thought amongst the ministers who are dealing with these funds to utilize part of that funds to further develop gas pipelines and use gas as a source of providing energy? Thank you. Thank you. The minister? Uh, I'm sure Mr. Singh, Honorable Singh, knows that uh, uh, I'm not one of the people who think that coal must disappear yesterday. I know that it is here, it is going to be here for a long time with us. I'm a believer that transition must be managed systematically. That's why one of the, the correct outcomes of COP26 is phasing down rather than phasing out. So that tells us that we must be systematic and be step by step. I believe in that in code. And just as a reminder, you know, I don't know if you know that the 8.5 billion was 131 billion rand at the time. It is this week at about 128 billion rand this week. 
in terms of the exchange rate. Coal in 2021 had a turnover of 130 billion. So it's not a Mickey Mouse sector, it's a big sector, it makes money, it generates income, it sustains a number of people. So I don't want to get into the argument about the money because it's not in my portfolio. My understanding is that that is in the portfolio of the minister in the presidency. That's where Mr. Minele is. Mr. Minele, who is heading that, is working in the ministry or in the presidency. So I don't want to tamper with it uh, because tempering and stampede on activities, totally disorganized activities. So we allow it to, to, to happen. It must, we must be consulted from time to time, but appreciate that the responsibility is in the minister in the presidency. The question 207 is asked to the Minister of Employment and Labor by the Honorable Dr. Kado. The Honorable, the Minister. Thank you. Honorable Chairperson, my, my reply to Honorable Cardo is as follows. The list of people who were involved in the development of the draft labor migration policy is very long. And I don't think it will do justice in mentioning every individual who participated in the process. The draft national labor migration policy is a product of extensive consultations amongst the senior management of the Department of Employment and Labor, the Employment Services Board, the DG's Technical Committee, the Interministerial Committee on Migration, covering 12 departments that was appointed by the president and co-chaired by myself and Minister of Home Affairs the ILO experts based locally and in Geneva, the technical support that was provided by the department in the form of Professor Marius Olifil and Professor Paul Benjamin from Chidland Thompson. The draft policy was subjected to the socioeconomic impact assessment system, the DG's economic employment and the infrastructure and social cluster, the cabinet committee of economic employment and infrastructure and, and the cabinet as a whole. So we do not have the records of the proportions of the salaries that each individual who participated at different stages of drafting the policy would have earned during this time or they spent in those sessions. The cost of the provision of the special assistance to Dell was a private and a confidential matter between the ILO and Professor Olifield after we submitted our request. The Chidland Thompson attorneys were appointed by Dell at the cost of 2.7 million spread over 18 months on this particular project. Thank you. Thank you. The Honorable Dr. Kado. Thank you, House Chair. Minister, one of the recommendations contained in the National Labor Migration Policy is the introduction of employment quotas for foreign nationals 
in certain sectors of the economy. Now, the correct term for this practice is job reservation, an old apartheid-era practice that was tossed into the dustbin of history in 1979, long before apartheid itself was toppled. Minister, do you support a return to apartheid-era job reservation? If not, why does the National Labour Migration Policy advocate employment quotas for foreign nationals in certain sectors of the economy? Thank you. The Honourable the Minister. It might, it might sound so, but it's not. The apartheid policy was racial. This is not racial. This is about protecting the interest of the South Africans. And I know the reason why you're asking, I know the reason why you're coming up with this matter is because most of the employers who want to exploit cheap labor are the ones who want this particular practice to continue. That's the issue. And the reality is that we cannot be mum and not respond to the complaints of our people in the country. But what we're not going to do is to deal with this matter in a reckless way. We have to deal with this matter in a proper way by respecting the human rights of all. For that particular matter, this is happening in many countries in this particular continent. Thank you. Honorable members, if you can listen to yourself, we can't even hear the minister very well. We have said it many times, those who don't come to the house, please know this house is small for you to be shouting at each other. Uh, we proceed. Uh, Mamu Tunjwa, the second follow-up is yours. Oh, it's Mamu uh, Zuma, Mamu Tunjwa. Yes, um, thank you, Chepesin. Uh, I will take on behalf of uh, Mamu Tunjwa. Thank you. Uh, notwithstanding that the national labor migration policy is still being processed out there, but the question has been asked on each year. Interestingly, only just money, nothing else. A minister, I'm interested on key features of the national labor migration policy and the challenges that they are trying to solve. What are they? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Chairperson, and thanks to this follow-up question on the key features. The, the proposed uh, draft national labor migration policy and proposed employment uh, services amendment bill are part of this government's medium-term strategic framework interventions that are central to realizing the, the growth objectives. They also contribute to other objectives relating to relations with the neighboring countries, the region and the world, national cohesion, social and economic stability and trade relations. We, we're not an island. So we're part of this global system. So this draft labor migration policy 
firstly fulfills the South Africa's commitment made at the level of, uh, of SADC, the SADC employment and labor sector, to develop and adopt labor migration policies by the end of 2019. Secondly, there is a need to provide guidance to the Department of Employment and Labor, the Department of Home Affairs and other government departments on the desired policy framework applicable to labor migration in South Africa. Thirdly, it provides evidence-based labor migration approach in a range of related areas, recruitment, data requirements, and labor migration to and from South Africa, which has been either insufficient or, or absent. And fourthly and lastly, it provides guidance on the appropriate legislative framework to accompany the policy. And in the fifth and the sixth instances, it provides for improved labor and social protection of migrant workers to and from South Africa, because we must not think that it's only people, it's inward uh, migration. We have a lot of South Africans who go into other countries who also must be protected. And it provides the clear policy direction on the regulatory provisions, the operationalization and the framework for South Africa's responses to the AU and SADC regional instruments in the making and uh, recently adopted. And thank you. Thank you. And the next follow-up will be asked by the Honorable Mukonto. Uh, thanks, Honorable. Chair. thanks, Chair. Minister, firstly, is the department under any pressure to develop this policy as a result of the growing xenophobic sentiments in the country? And is your development of this policy not an encouragement to the xenophobes out there. Secondly, why have you not seen it fit to develop internal capacity within your department to write policies of this nature instead of outsourcing it to private individuals? Thanks, House Chair. Thank you. The Honorable the Minister. If... Uh... The Honourable Member listened carefully. The people whom I've listed here, 95%, if not 98%, are in the departments, different departments. But the reality was that this is a complex legal and a constitutional matter. We have had to consult with the constitutional experts and the legal experts in labor relations on this matter. And the only person who came from outside, not even paid by us, who's an expert in this particular field, I've told you that it's Professor Olifield, who was also sponsored by the ILO. So the, there's no question of, of consultants here. And this process was led by the DDG in, in, in the department. <clears throat> to say, are we under pressure? We have to respond to the expectations of our people in the midst of high unemployment. We can't just keep quiet. When many sectors call it agriculture, security, retail, you many sectors, 
when you find that in some of them, 90% of the people they are employing are the people who are coming from outside. And for that matter, they are distorting the labor market by not sticking to the agreements and including the basic conditions of employment. And we can just keep quiet. We have to respond to those issues. So that's why we're responding to those issues. In fact, by coming up with this approach, we are trying to regulate it so that we deal with the xenophobia. We're trying to stop xenophobia and come up with a regulated approach. Thank you. Thank you. This last supplementary question, Honorable Singh. Thank you very much, Honorable Chairperson. Honorable Chairperson, I have a question here from Honorable Noble, uh, who sits on this committee, but I'm gonna put that aside and ask my own question. Honorable Chairperson, uh, Honorable Minister, you are aware that the IFP has got a private member's bill on the table, where we also are proposing that in areas where South Africans can perform certain functions, truck drivers, uh, restaurant workers, et cetera, et cetera, menial jobs, that the larger majority and percentage of those jobs should go to South Africans. Now, we don't find that happening. If you go to the Western Cape, and many of us, if we have a chance to go to the restaurants, we find that many of the people employed there are foreign people doing jobs which I think South Africans could do. So don't you, do you agree that there needs to be this kind of regulation so that we protect the interests of South Africans? Unfortunately, Honorable Nova's question would thank have you. been a, the minute. Yours is more. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> definitely, definitely, Honorable C. We will listen and interact with the private members bill, what it proposes. But also, we must be very careful looking at the constitution where we cannot ban people. There are refugees who would be here legally. And in terms of the international protocols, which we have signed as a country, uh, they have a right to uh, look for economic activity in order to sustain themselves. So we can't ban them, but we can be able to regulate that. But I think many countries are following what you are proposing. It's something which we will have to analyze, but we know that there are constitutional implications. That's why I said we had to consult the constitutional in, I mean, experts and labor experts in order to ensure that we do not violate our own constitution. And they warned us about that. You can regulate it and put quotas, but you can't ban it. But very interesting, the point we are emphasizing is the practice of the Western Cape, which always portrays itself as a good province when it's living on exploitation. Thank you. Thank you. We now proceed to question 231, asked to the Minister of Mineral Resources and Energy by the Honorable Madogwe. The Honorable, the Minister. Thank you very much, Honorable Chairperson. The question is multifaceted. 
uh, in that it talks about continued use of fossil fuel for energy generation. And then it, it talks about Western environmental conscience of convenience with genuine climate change concerns and government commitment at the conference. In other words, it says, fossil fuels are used in developed economies, but we're told to leave them yesterday. Uh, the result of the matter is that the matter referred to in the question should be addressed to the Department of Forestry, Fishery and Environment. Uh, I'm referring to Minister Chris, right here. The department is better placed to provide leadership in environmental on, on a point of order, on a point of order, House Chair. On a point of order, House Chair. Honorable Ntlangwini. Those questions was placed long ago on the question paper. And for the minister to even come here to this house and say it must be referred to another department and even make a joke about Hon it. Honorable, it, it, honorable, it's really, it's really ridiculous. We can't be sitting here up till honorable six o'clock for a man to come and just stand up and say it's going to refer. No man, no man. Honorable we don't want that argument. The honorable, the minister is still on the floor. Allow the minister to give the response. Proceed, Honorable Minister. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, you know, superiority complex gives you a right that you don't have, that you have a monopoly of wisdom. <clears throat> and, and therefore stop everybody else who doesn't say what you want to hear. Uh, it's a quite a, a terrible disease. Uh, it requires to be treated seriously. Now, the department, the department is better placed to provide that leadership there. Uh, but what is important is we take an active interest in the unfolding uh, developments and discussions uh, on just transition, which are beginning to take good shape for us to manage the transition systematically and proactively. And we part of that, we agree with it. Developments in the EU confirming that the need for being systematic is that gas and nuclear now have been labeled as part of the green transition. They were regarded as fossil fuel that must not be touched. They were not even accepting nuclear as being a part of the green transition. Now that is changing. Uh, I think the, 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 the pressure from the Russian-Ukrainian conflict is actually putting new pressures in the sense that demand for coal has increased, particularly from EU, from us. Uh, uh, and therefore, that demand tells us that we must be more systematic in managing the transition and not be fashionable. And, and therefore, that is where we are, but I, I think the bigger part of the question should go to my colleague there. <coughs> she is accepting that. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Honorable Madoka. Uh, thank you, House Chair. Um, the 
$8.5 billion pledged in response to South Africa's commitment to move away from coal only covers a portion the country will need to fully transition. Despite the fact that there are actual climate change problems that must be addressed, the reality is that this agreement is imperialist in character since it requires developing nations to suffer expenditures by transitioning in a short space of time, thus trapping them in a cycle of poverty and reliance on foreign aid. What factors influence South Africa's decision to enter into such a ludicrous agreement that will cost the country more money and strangle the coal industry? And where does it plan to raise the money to satisfy this obligation when it can barely find enough money to fund basic service delivery commitments it made eons ago? Thank you. The Honorable the Minister. Uh, the follow-up question uh, confirms my submission, which I was shouted for, that uh, a person who can deal with this issue competently is the minister in the presidency. Now, I'm shifting it from minister of FFE, because the person employed to, to, to deal with financing uh, transition is located in the ministry and the presidency. But I think the content of what should be debated here is still in the Department of FFE. I'm making that submission. It is helpful sometimes to be humble enough to know what is not in your portfolio and not pretend as if everything is in your portfolio. It is not in my portfolio, but the reality of the matter is coal must be phased down. It must be managed carefully. It must continue fulfilling the market demands. And in terms of the IEA research, the coal demand will be growing up to 2024. And our coal miners must actually exploit that opportunity fully and not be uh, engaged in a premature a destruction of an industry that is actually a healthy industry. That is our submission in this regard. Thank you. Honorable Lizuipo. Ika is not responding to questions. Honorable Langa, do you need, do you want assistance? <laughs> thank you. Thank you, House Chairperson, and thank you, uh, Honorable Minister. In view of South Africa's commitment to the Paris Climate Agreement, what plans does the department have in place to strike a balance between tackling emissions to help the country to transition towards a flexible, in a flexible manner, towards a low carbon situation, being cognizant of the fact that the coal industry remains one of the mainstays of South Africa's energy basket, as well as a strategic, as well as, as a strategic center, as far as, uh, as as far as job creation, as well as job uh, uh, security is concerned. Thank you very much, House Chairperson. Thank you, the Honourable the Minister. Uh, the Paris Agreement, South Africa is a signatory to it. It's not portions of Southern government that are a signatory. It is the Southern government that is a signatory to the Paris Agreement. 
movement from high carbon emission to low carbon emission is a commitment that is undertaken by the country, everybody who are part of that. But the reality of the matter is that we must manage that transition carefully and be pragmatic in managing it. That's our argument. A coal is around, it will be phased down. The reason that we invested in the Romco pipeline and continue to want to invest in gas is that we think that if a Romco pipeline is used optimally, repurposing some of the coal fire power station to gas power station, therefore replace uh, coal turbines with gas turbines, will be a contribution in managing that transition. So there are quite a number of, of uh, transitions, uh, transitional interventions that are necessary. But one of the issues, when people talk about coal, close coal now, uh, I always invite them to take a visit with me, uh, and we just travel from Belmas to Delmas, Belfast to Delmas, and see the real impact of coal mining and, and, and coal generated power in a stretch, one stretch from Belfast to Delmas. Many people don't care about that. And they talk about numbers. And I'm saying, let's talk about people and must talk about communities. Thank you, Chairperson. Minister, I saw how adeptly you dodged my previous two questions. Now, hopefully I can get a straight answer from you this time, and it does fall directly in your portfolio. So given that we have a crisis of electricity supply, the fact that we have committed to the Paris Agreement and that we have submitted our own nationally determined contributions to the United Nations Framework, on, uh, framework Convention on Climate Change, and given that bid window five was massively oversubscribed, um, there were 102 bid bidders, offering 9,600 megawatts of electricity, of which government procured uh, 2,583 megawatts from 25 bidders at a price well below what ESCOM is offering. So my question for you is very simple, Minister. Will you raise or remove the cap on renewable energy in the IRP? Currently, it sits at 1,000 megawatts for solar, 1,600 megawatts of wind per annum, Will you raise or remove that cap in order to speed up our transition and bring new generation capacity online as quickly as possible? And if not, why not? Honorable Minister. Uh, any government that has no policy framework uh, will do trial and error. But when there's a policy framework, you execute to implement that policy framework. Uh, that's why implementing the bid window, windows religiously is about execution and compliance with the framework that is determined and tested. Now, it is assumed that if you remove them, there will be oversubscription. You know, last year, this time last year, Mr. Melam, I want to remind you, you are all in our case that if you deregulate embedded generation from one megawatt to 100 megawatts, there will be a flood of applications. A year later, we have not registered a single application, not one. We are encouraging companies, parallel mining companies, to do apply and use that opportunity. So sometimes this assumption that when you make a policy amendment, 
there's going to be a flood. It doesn't work in real life. And if you have ever managed anything, you will know that. That stream, that, you will know that. You will need to, to, to actually manage that. What is nice about bid windows that they are implemented is that they constitute contracts and commitments. They're not like free, uh, uh, deregulated space in energy. Once you surprise there, you are committing, and therefore we monitor you, we can be ensured that you do implement what you committed to, to it. And therefore, removing the gap maybe is necessary, but from where I'm seated is that I want to see that 7,800 megawatts being implemented. Then I will know that we're making progress because 7,800 megawatts is about the size of actually two and a half power stations currently. And if we can build those in the framework that we have said, we'll be making progress because AECO is instant energy. E-energy, once you approve a framework, they build infrastructure, they generate, they connect to a transition. So sometimes this thing of imagined instant energy doesn't work in real life. Thank you very much, Honorable Chair. Honorable Minister, I agree with you that the the, the, the money that's going to be made available resides within, within the ministry, in the, in the presidency. But there's no doubt that the cluster of ministers that sit here will, to a large extent, influence how that money is going to be spent. So I think we have to take that into account as well. Uh, it's also been said, Honorable uh, Minister, I read somewhere, somebody says the energy sector is dominated by the use of coal because it's plentiful and cheap. It may be plentiful and cheap, but cheap for whom? cheap for the people that are producing energy, but costly to those people that are living in Mpumalanga and other areas that are affected by these obnoxious gases all the time. Now, my question to you, Honorable Minister, is has there been a study done that as you manage this transition and phase away your coal mines, those workers that are employed in that industry be trained to do something else within the renewable energy sector? And those that cannot be trained there should be a safety net provided for them in terms of income by government. Has there been that thought in amongst the cluster of ministers? Thank you very On much. On time. Sure. Thank, Thank you. Honorable Minister. Uh, I am one of the victims of having been a coal miner. Now, as a coal miner, I'm not feel guilty that I was a coal miner. I think I made a contribution. Energy dominated by coal is not an accident of history that we need to wipe up as, as quick as we can. We developed ESCOM in 1923. It has been the primary and the only energy supply uh, entity in the country for almost a century. Now, to move from that to a new design of energy supply must be managed properly. So we don't have coal that is dominating by accident or it's an accident of history. It was built in 1923 and continued to be <coughs> supplying energy. In the 1990s, not many centuries ago, 
that entity called ESCO was supplying uh, one of the three lowest cost energies in the world. In the world. So sometimes when we want to change the direction of history, we have this thing of wanting to curse what has carried us over a long period of time. We can't curse coal because it carried us. Now there is pressure to move from high carbon emission to low carbon emission. We must commit to that, implement programs that will do that. There are workers there and there are communities there. That's why I'm saying in actually phasing down coal use, we must repurpose some of the power stations. And I'm saying gas is such an alternative, renewables are such an alternative. And in the process, workers should be absorbed in those. But it should go beyond that and develop an alternative economic framework for the area. Because in, in the area where I stayed for a number of years, the Delmas to Belfast area is much bigger than what you see in the Newcastle Friday area. It's massive. And we must apply our mind in absorbing those workers and those communities. Protect them. Thank you. <coughs> Honorable members, uh, the time. Honorable Austin. Okay, can you, Minister, can you switch off your mic, please? Is there something? Yes, yes. Honorable House Chair, arise on Rule 64 on point of order. I okay. don't know if you want to conclude or you would allow me to raise it. Please, please Thank do before. So Thank you so much. House Chair, arise on, on Rule 64, like I said, on conduct of members. And conduct of members is explicitly clear. It says that members must all, all times accord the presiding officer of the National Assembly and members with due respect and conduct themselves with dignity and in accordance with the decorum of the House and are required to enter or leave the House with decorum. So I'm just only quoting just point one. The reason why I'm rising, Honorable McClure, when we started, he did raise point of order um, around Honorable Paulson, who would have switched on his video, who was on virtual, and he was seen smoking some substance, and Honorable Deputy Speaker could not uh, uh, rule on it because he was not aware what was happening on virtual. Now, there's a video trending as an evidence that is roaming around the streets of social media, that Parliament also utilizes the social media as form communication. Now we have the country and obligation that is following us. So we want to raise it and I want to raise it with yourself to say that we're putting it to yourself that as a presiding officer, Madam Chair, can you go back and look into that video and can you subject this matter, uh, this member to ethics committee and you need to come back to the house on rule on it because we need to uh, rule and, and make sure that we, okay. we adhere to the conduct and the decorum. Thank you. Okay. On a point of order, Deputy uh, um, Honorable Trangwin, okay, okay. may I respond to the honorable member first? Thank honorable, you. honorable members, uh, you are aware that at the time, uh, as she says, the honorable member is saying, there was deputy speaker on this chair. And uh, there was a point of order. And uh, now you have. Uh, another evidence of what you're talking about. Mine is here, I cannot rule, and I cannot take it to ethics committee, but I will refer, I will 
take it back to the deputy speaker who will decide on the matter. Chairperson. Honorable Ntlangwini. Chairperson. Honorable Ntlangwini was first, Ms. Honorable Paulson, if you can allow her, unless she gives you the opportunity. But on this matter, I have ruled. I'm not going to entertain anything on this matter. Honorable Ntlangwini, can I hear what you're saying? Thank you very much, um, House Chair. I wanted to speak before you are doing a ruling. Um, House Chair, there have been many other members um, um, doing, and I'm not condoning what the Honorable Nazir have done. No way. Honorable Tawini, may I'm I stop not you just what there? He was doing. It's very wrong. But may how, I just however, stop you there? How, however, then she I'm must not go ruling. and fetch all of I'm those not... people that have been seen naked even on video. Honorable Tawini, please stop. Stop being Honorable Tawini, please stop. On no, this matter. I have ruled, and that is what I have said now. I will take it back to the deputy. I'm not going to allow anything on this matter. Uh, honorable members, uh, the all of time them that allocated for questions has expired. Outstanding replies received Chair will Chair be printed Chair on Hansard. Thank you, Chair the Chair House Chair is urgent. Long Chair live, Chair. Madam.